Luck under center. He'll bring uh, Donnie Avery from left to right. Play action. Rolls to the right side. Looks back. Throws to the left side. Caught by Ballard. 15, 10, 5. He dives for the end zone. He is... Oh! Holtz win! Holtz win! Holtz win! Big Ballard on the pass catch! Hello? Is this is this on? <laughs> yeah. Uh welcome back to the Sportscasters proper. We have uh been in the dark for the last couple weeks. Um we had some website server type issues that are now resolved. And we are back with uh we're gonna call it season three, episode one. Uh last year we cut season one off around Christmas. We're gonna cut it off a little early this year since we just had the break. And Honestly, right now, I don't, I don't know how Christmas and New Year's is going to fall this year. If we'll do shows around then. If we won't, I don't know. We might take a break then again. We'll see. But this we're going to call Season 3, Episode 1. It's October 30th, 2012. We're uh, safe and sound here in Buffalo, New York. I know a lot of the East Coast struggled with uh, that bitch Sandy. Yeah. She uh, knocked uh, ugly. New York City especially. Yep. Really took it hard, and, and New Jersey, the Jersey Shore areas, and things like that. But we're safe in Buffalo, and if we have any listeners out in that area, we hope that you're safe. A um, couple things to kind of say and go over kind of where we are. Um, the first day that we ended up having our problems with the servers, we did record a couple of interviews. One of them was with Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated, and unfortunately... At this point, that interview doesn't have any value. The information from it is dated. I spoke with Grant about it. He understands and is more than glad to join us again. So next time, maybe as the English Premier League, which is kind of just starting up, gets heated up, we'll get Grant back on and and have an opportunity to talk some soccer. Another interview that we did that day was an interview with Brian Curtis, who's a writer for Grantland. There's some pieces in that interview where Brian and I discussed the OU Texas game that obviously the OU Texas game has been played, but the majority of the interview was about Josh Hamilton and what his off season is going to look like. And that is still very valid. And we're going to, we're going to air that interview as the third interview in this first show of the third season. If you want to hear what ended up being the season finale of season two, it's season two, episode thirty-five of the show, and it featured Jonah Carey, Damon Hack, and Lars Anderson. Three great interviews with three great guys, and three guys who honestly are are really good friends to the podcast, especially Damon, um, who is just an incredible guy, uh, and has always been incredible to us, and is an example of a guy who has helped us get to where we're having a season three of this show. Right. You know, we have to thank people like Lee Jenkins and John Wertheim. And Damon Hack. Those are the guys who really have gotten us to this point, and we're forever indebted to them. I also want to mention, just off the top, some things that we're really bad at mentioning, like our website is www.sports-casters.com. Anything you want to know about us, you can find there. If you want to know what our Twitter is, at sports underscore casters, there's a link to it there. If you want to find our Facebook, which is just facebook.com slash thesportscasters, there's a link to it there. 
And also we have blogs on Twitter and Tumblr, which we haven't done much with lately, but we're going to get more and more involved with those as Season 3 progresses. And I also want to mention, since I have a feeling that we're going to have some first-time listeners today because of something that I'll tell you about in a second, I don't want anyone to forget that this is only one of two podcasts that we produce each week. The other one is on a website called Football Nation, which is simply www.footballnation.com, and it's solely surround. It's about football only. So on the Sportscasters proper, we talk about all sports. If you want a podcast that's a little shorter and focused only on football, you can go to footballnation.com, click on the podcast link at the top, and you'll be able to find our shows. We've done about 26 of them, and we've had great guests. We've had Peter King. We've had the Hoop Dreams director, Steve James. We've had uh, Dave Damashak, Adam Rank. We've, we've uh, Marv Albert's son, Kenny Albert. Kenny, yep. um, just really some great guests. And this week on that show, we have Freddie Coleman, who's the host of the NFL on ESPN Radio each Sunday. And he does that show with uh, Eric Allen and... Tim Hasselbeck. And if you want to check that out, you can go to www.footballnation.com and click on podcasts. All right. So today's show, this is what we got lined up. First off, we got something totally different, totally out of the box, something we've never done before. An interview with a guy named Dan Giesling, who is the winner of season 10 of Big Brother and the runner-up of season 14. Now, why would we have a reality guest on? Well, he also is a football coach. He was a grad assistant on the uh, Michigan State football team when he went to college there. And he coached a prep team in Michigan, Orchard Lake High School in Michigan, Orchard Lake St. Mary's. And we're going to talk to him about football, coaching football. We'll talk to him a little bit about Big Brother He's also a huge fan of the Karate Kid. We got some of that mixed in, and it's just something different. And I think one thing we've always tried to do on the sportscasters is not to box ourselves into one thing, but to try to present a bunch of different things, and this is an example of that. Then we get a little bit more traditional, and we have an interview with S.L. Price from Sports Illustrated, who's making his third appearance on the show. He was last on at the beginning of the summer, and it was kind of one of the most infamous interviews in the history of the sportscasters. Is at the end of it, SL and I actually got into kind of an impromptu battle about Twitter, and it got a really great response, and people really enjoyed it, and we really enjoy SL. And he is on today as part of our book club update, as he had two two stories listed in this year's Best American Sports Writing Series. And uh, that's the book called Book of the Month, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about that. And then the last interview, as I said, is with Brian Curtis, which we recorded before the break. So a lot to take in there. We also have five on fantasy. We're going to start zero, 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 pick four. But I also have our all-time records, okay. our final record from season one, our final record from season two, and where we stand all time. Uh, we're going to do five on fantasy. We're going to update the book club, and we're going to get the show started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. 
Now let's move on to other business. All right, before we get started in three things, I have to say, I said off the top that we're not the best promoters. We should probably go to promote your podcast class. <laughs> but I gave that whole big spiel, and I know we have new listeners, and I did not mention who we are. Oh, no, we didn't, probably. <laughs> so my name is Steve Bennett. I'm the host, and hey. my co-host is Don Russ. How's it going? So we should have got that out of the way. Welcome. Yeah, welcome to the <laughs> podcast. Thank you. All right, the first thing this week and what we do almost every week, if not every week during the football season, is just kind of talk about the week that was in the NFL. And, uh, again, a lot of favorites winning, a lot of home teams winning. Uh, Patriots look like they're dominant against uh, the Rams. Falcons proved me wrong. I, I thought maybe the Eagles would give them a little bit of a game, and they didn't. Anything that stood out to you? Yeah, I think it started right away on Thursday with the Buccaneers going into Minnesota and winning a game that I think the Buccaneers are going to regret losing. Or, excuse me, the Vikings are going to regret losing. Yeah. We've talked on both shows about how the Vikings' schedule is really nasty after their bye week. And with the emergence of Green Bay kind of looking more and more like Green Bay each week, that second half for the Vikings is just getting more brutal all the time. They still have two games against the Vikings, two games against the Bears, and a game against the Texans on their schedule. I was surprised at how well the the Buccaneers played on the road in the short week, um, and I was surprised at how poorly the Vikings played. And I think that, particularly defensively, and I, yeah, and I think that Christian Ponder is in a, a crossroads in his season. It started as uh, him emerging, yep. and it's deteriorated a bit on him. Freeman might be the opposite. Uh, yeah, he was he's a guy that had a real average season. year last year. Or was last year his rookie year? Two years ago. Two years ago, he was a rookie. Last year, he sophomore right, they slumped kinda, it a bit. Yeah, and then he started off a little bit slow, and he's been real solid the last three, four games, and that offense is, is really moving the ball, and that's a, that's a tough division. Yeah, that stuck out. Also, the ease with the Broncos, the way they beat the Saints. Now, the Saints' defense is historically bad, and nobody's going to question that. But the way the Broncos' defense shut down the Saints' offense is about as good as I've seen anyone do it in the entire Drew Brees, Sean Payton era. The Saints' offense was confused, and in the second half, they looked like they quit. They they almost looked like they just... And when you... When you have a defense that is as bad as the Saints' defense is, you you just can't play that poorly. It literally looked like in that game the Broncos could have called any offensive play they wanted to. I mean, they they ran well, but when the game well. was yeah, the, look at the Broncos blew the Saints out. But and it's easy to blame the defense, but I want people to realize that the defense made stops when the game was close. They caused the, a fumble, but the offense. The Saints' offense has to be perfect. Every single time the Saints' defense gets a stop, there's maybe only going to be two or three a game. They need to score a touchdown. And I think the pressure of that looks like it's wearing on Drew Brees and the Saints' offense. And they just, if they're not perfect, they're not going to win. I think it looked like that. I mean, he's a little bit of a gunslinger at times, but I think it looked like that a little bit in the beginning of the season, just kind of throw in some crazy balls because he knew he he had to. He had to do stuff like that. Uh, people that don't know, if you do have first-time listeners out there, Steve's a big Saints fan. My question would be, why is the D this bad? It's a great question because it's the same D that basically Greg Williams They replaced Vilma with 
Lofton. Lofton. So and then Vilma now is back playing, you would think, an upgrade over Scott Shanley, even though it's a new position for him. Uh, you know, Tracy Porter is not there. Maybe that's hurt, but that's not going to take a defense and make it historically bad. Yeah. Now, it was said in the beginning of the year that Steve Spagnuolo runs a really complicated defense and that there's going to take time. But at this point, everyone has to know the scheme, right? So I don't know what it is about this defense. I haven't figured it out yet. It's loaded with first-round picks, but maybe it's loaded with first-round picks that just aren't living up to what they were. Cedric Ellis, the guy they picked in the top ten of the draft, he was benched last week. He he barely gets on the field. He's not what they thought he was when they used the top ten pick on him. Uh, Malcolm Jenkins is a great hustler, but maybe not a great safety. He's a converted safety. He played cornerback in college. Uh, Patrick Robinson is a first-round pick, but he was pick number 32, um, and he's short, and that was he had a real tough matchup with Demarius Thomas. who was much bigger, and Demarius Thomas owned it. Jabari Greer's having the worst season I've seen him have ever. I, I followed him as a Bill and now as a Saint. So I don't know if I figured it out, but they're historically awful, yeah. and because of that, the offense needs to be perfect to win, and they just weren't on Sunday, and that's what happens. They're they're done now, right? I, mean, I said N- I NFC said all is... along that if they didn't get to four and four before they lose lost again, they'd be done. I mean, the and NF- they, they didn't. The NFC is the better conference. You've got Forty Niners, Giants. Uh, if they went ten and six, that might not be enough. Yeah, and that means winning every game but one the rest of the way. And they have Philadelphia, Atlanta, San Francisco, Atlanta, New York, Dallas. So, a I mean, they're time, going to lose two of those, A lot right? of times people will tell you it's not about the record. It's how many teams they have to jump. Like, they'll say that about hockey. Right. There's, there's just a lot of teams there. The Packers are 5-3 and three all of a sudden. And, you know, the Saints have done it to themselves. The Carolina and Kansas City are 2-12. and 12, And yeah. both of their wins are against the Saints. So, and by the way, 32nd running the ball. Yeah. 30th against the pass. 31st against the rush. First Passing. In the league passing. <laughs> so, not going to get it done. The Bears, to me, are an interesting team. They're 6-1. Their defense, if you're a fantasy player, are having an all-time great season. In reality, they're pretty good, too. They score a lot. They get a lot of touchdowns. Uh, first against the rush. 18th against the pass. Uh, but, boy, Jay Cutler was brought there to be better than Rex Ryan. Or Rex Ryan. Rex Grossman. Rex Grossman. And they're the 30th passing offense in the league. And this is after also bringing back uh, Brandon Marshall. Marshall. But he look, he's playing well. Yeah, he's not playing bad. But my point is they're 30th in the league passing the ball uh, against a terrible defensive team in the Panthers. They need to come back from 12 points down to win. They're just an odd team. Uh, 4-0 at home now. But, again, they're, they're not beating anybody. or They're not blowing anybody away. And... They're letting teams like the Panthers hang tight with and them. And Green Bay's coming. Right. And I shouldn't say they're not blowing anybody away. They blew out Jacksonville a couple weeks ago. But uh, they played Detroit really Jacksonville's tight. Jacksonville's the worst team in the league probably. They got smoked by Green Bay. I mean, it's an interesting team. That offense really has to turn around. It's kind of the opposite of the Saints. Uh, that defense kind of has to do everything. And they shouldn't. you wouldn't think they would have to. They're not exactly the, the, the Tampa Bay Bucks that won the Super Bowl with a game manager. That's not what Cutler is supposed to be doing. But Unbelievable. We've always talked about how small the difference is between winning and losing some of these games. That yeah. Cowboys and Giants game is an unbelievable example of that. 
I mean, literally, if Des Bryant doesn't put his hand down to break his fall, oh. he's in the end zone for a touchdown. I almost, if the guy wasn't such an idiot, I'd almost feel for him at that point. Because it. He made a great catch. He did. To go up and get it. He also fumbled on a punt return. Yeah, I mean, he was a big game. reason why they were built themselves a, what was it, a 23 to nothing hole. Romo, who's usually. A, Seems like a pretty good team guy. Kind of glared at him after the first interception. He's losing his patience with the inconsistency of Des Bryant. Yeah, I, I wonder if Des Bryant's a cowboy next year. He might not be. He might need a new spot. Um, and Jason Witten, 18 catches? That's historically yeah, great. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, the Chargers, I kind of, on the last podcast, our last Football Nation podcast, called out Phillip Rivers, and he did not respond. Terrible mm-hmm. game against... A good defense, but come on. Uh, the, Brown, the Browns put up seven points in the first quarter, and that held up. That's not good enough if you're Phillip Rivers. He was. The Browns are 25th against the pass. 25th, yeah. Yep. So, I mean, not good. Yeah, I think we might be seeing the end of the North Turner era in San Diego, and we might be seeing the end of the Andy Reid era in Philadelphia. Yeah. As If I think if we're starting to think about coaches that might not be back next year, those two kind of jump off the page. But they're not teams that are completely out of it either. So maybe those two coaches have a chance to turn it around, but you're starting to get the feeling that it's maybe reaching the end of the line there. The Oakland Raiders win on the road in Kansas City. In Kansas City, that's another team that Romeo Cornell might be out of a job there. And if he is, he's only got himself to blame. Five carries? Five carries for Jamal Charles. Your best player. Fantasy owners out there. Clearly the best player on that offense. And did you hear what he said when he was asked about it in the press conference? He lets the – I know he lets the offensive coordinator. He just said, I don't know what happened there. Yeah. I don't know. His offensive coordinator makes the call. So if there's that big a disconnect, one of you guys has to go or at least sit down and have a talk or whatever. But five carries for your most uh, dynamic player while your leading rusher in the game is your quarterback. Matt Castle, seven carries for 35 yards. And we talked a little bit how the cupboard is a little bare in New York with the Jets, and if Rex Ryan has to go down, Tannenbaum should go down with him. That might be the case in Kansas City as well. If Romeo has to go down, Scott Pioli might have to go down with him as well because Matt Castle hasn't worked out, and that, that cupboard's a little bit bare too. There's not much talent there. And I'm sure I, I'm, I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit here. I'm not, probably not the only one that said this, but last week I mentioned how I thought the Dolphins might be for real, and they went and just spanked the Jets in their building. and With their quarterback getting hurt fairly right. early. And they still they dominated with the backup, too. Uh, I, I think the Dolphins are for real. I think they can challenge New England for the, for the East. It's, it's going to come down to their quarterback play, but, I mean, it's always with the Dolphins lately about their defense. And uh, I think they're just solid. And New England's not exactly they've got a they've got some blowout wins. Like I said, they blew out the Rams this week, but in London, in London, but they're not blowing everybody out. And they're playing teams tight and they're losing tight games to teams like Arizona. So I would watch out if I were Miami. And if as a Bills fan, at the beginning of the season, that's something to say. The Bills didn't lose this week. No, so that's a nice thing. Uh, they didn't play, but they didn't lose. But as a Bills fan, at the beginning of the season, when you're looking at the schedule after they get this new revamped defense and they get their offensive players all signed and under contract and all all that good stuff that felt really good in the offseason, when you're looking at their easy quote-unquote schedule, you saw the Dolphins on there twice, and that had to be two wins. I think they're going to be lucky to get one now. 
Yeah, I mean, as for the Dolphins, they're four and three. Uh, they traveled to Indianapolis, a better than expected team, but it's a winnable game. Then they have Tennessee at home, and then they play their Thursday night game here in Buffalo. So if they win all three of those games, they'd be seven and three at Thanksgiving. Their schedule, I mean, then they face Seattle, New England, San Fran, Jacksonville, Buffalo, New England. So you're going to get Jacksonville. That should be a win. Buffalo, uh, if they can split with New England, they know. definitely have a chance to challenge for a wild card, no doubt. I think easily. Yep. Now the question is, what's the status of Tannehill? And if he's not okay, is that maybe a blessing? Is maybe Matt Moore? Because Matt Moore was very good. He was. And, you know, I think... If you're a playoff team now, you're not going to take the reins away from Tannehill, but Moore might be a little more experienced. Yeah, and Moore... What I'm saying is Moore isn't not the starter there because he wasn't good enough. He's not the starter there because they they wanted to go with the rookie. Right. You know, but now here they got four wins. They got some momentum. They're maybe a little bit better than they thought. And I wonder if maybe Matt Moore is more appropriate to... Maybe not, but uh, it's just a thought. Uh, yeah, the Steelers win a game they probably should and need to against the Redskins. They're having a tough year, but the Steelers are still 3-0 and at home. Not too much to say about that one. Lions beat the Seahawks, which is a nice win for them. They've been kind of bad. It's a good Needed win. another good fourth quarter, Good though. win for Stafford. Yeah, they, they got 14 points in the fourth. Uh, Packers beat the Jags. Not really a game as close as the score, but they really didn't put them away either. Uh, they were resting Jordy Nelson, it sounds like. It sounds like if that was the Super Bowl, Jordy Nelson probably plays, but because it's the Jags, he doesn't. And last night on Monday Night Football, Ugh. wow, uh, the 49ers, they got two losses right now, but they they look like they could play with anybody. They destroyed Arizona, who is officially faded away to, into oblivion. Yeah, they were Were they 3-0 or 4-0? 4-0. They were 4-0, so they're 0-4 in their last. And, yeah, San Francisco losses to Minnesota and New York. Bad loss to New York, but they've come back and allowed nine points since then. So, And uh, if you're a Cardinals fan and you want to right the ship, it's Green Bay, bye week, Atlanta. Yeah, good luck. So it could be four and six before they play St. Louis at home. Good luck. All right, I think we got it. Yep. On to uh, the World Series, I guess, and boy, were we wrong there. Yeah. My, Luckily, my, that's a podcast that uh, won't air. Yeah, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, the podcast, one of the ones that we did that we, we couldn't get up because of our server issues, we, we both kind of talked about how we thought Verlander would take the ball in game one yep. and take control of the series and that the pitching of the Tigers would hold up. Right. But it didn't. The, uh, Not at all. The Giants won that first game. Uh, Pablo Sandoval hit three home runs. He's only one of four players to hit three home runs in a World Series game. The others are like Albert Pujols and Reggie Jackson, you know, huge names like that. And uh, the Giants had a 3 nothing lead before their ace ever got the ball, and then their ace took the ball, and they got a run in the ninth, and they swept them. I mean, it was just it was, uh, it was a nondescript World Series. It was over before you knew it. Yeah, and the one thing I mentioned on the other podcast that I'd love to see now that I don't have in front of me is baseball. I kind of beat them up for being terrible with scheduling. Yep, and they game got four, snapped again. Uh, their clinching game, their crowning jewel game for their season occurred during a good, well, it wasn't good overly matchup. competitive, but it was right. a good matchup 
in Sunday Night Football. And, and they I'm got sure whacked. Sure, they got smoked. They got whacked, and it was the lowest rated World Series in the history of baseball. I'm sure the fact that it was a sweep doesn't that doesn't help. help. Nope. But still, that's that's your game. That's got to be you got to you got to do better. Than, you got to be smarter than that. The NHL wouldn't have competed with the NFL there. The NHL for as lousily run a league as it is, would, they would know better. Would know better. They didn't. They don't play their Winter Classic up against an NFL playoff game. Right. Or doesn't make any sense. Cool. Uh, cool little aside there about the. The game, Brandon Crawford, the shortstop for the San Francisco Giants, not exactly an all-star or anything like that, solid player. Uh, there's a cool picture of him from the San Francisco Chronicle back in 1992 as a 5-year-old. Uh, kind of teary-eyed kid sitting next to a sign that says, Mr. White, do what's right, keep the Giants in San Francisco. He's a big big 49, or 49ers, I knew I was going to do that. Big Giants fan, right from a little kid. Uh He's the only player that has his name on a brick outside the stadium. Awesome. That also has his name now in a locker room and now on a on a World Series. And just kind of a cool story there. If you check out sfgate.com, I think that's like the official uh, website of the Chronicle, they have a cool thing about him growing up and living in San Francisco. And, I mean, he was a genuinely a fan. This would be like uh, – Pat Coletta winning a Stanley Cup with the Sabres. Yeah, and I heard there's big celebration at the Tanner household um, after the last <laughs> out. I guess, you know, Uncle, Uncle Jesse, Jesse yeah. and, and Joey were just really pumped to see them get the win. Doing Bullwinkle in person. Yep, so we're just really, really happy for them. And the mad dog, Chris Russo, maybe the most famous uh, San Francisco Giants fan. And, you know, personally, I'm a huge Barry Zito fan, and um, I've stuck with him over the years as he kind of – I know he's a bit aloof and he's a different kind of weird guy, but I've always been a big fan of him from his days in Oakland as part of the big three with Mulder and Hudson. And I was really pumped to see him out-duel Verlander in game one and, and win that game. It's just an awesome moment. And it was funny because he won the world. This is two out, two and three years for the Giants, but he wasn't on the postseason roster a couple of years ago. And uh, it's great to see him bounce back and be such a contributor. And if anyone would have ever told you, that Tim Lincecum would be in the bullpen in game one and Barry Zito would be starting, starting on the yeah. mound, they would have told you they had no chance. So we weren't the only ones wrong about the Giants, and congratulations to them. My second my, – I guess that was my second one. Yeah, so you're okay. up to two now. My second thing well. this week, short and sweet, Lolo Jones, after three weeks in Lake Placid, has officially been named to the U.S. bobsled team. So I guess what that would say – it would bring up the question, is Lolo Jones that freakish an athlete, or is bobsled just not, like, should I work out hard and try to make a bobsled team? Uh, Dave Damashek suggested it to us on this podcast before. That if you're going to do something, yeah. just There's a, not a lot of people trying to do that. She's one of the, I think they call them pushers, who literally just runs, uh, four-man bobsled, I believe, uh, runs behind it, pushing. And then one person up front is the driver, or... Pilots, they call them. So, yeah, uh, good for Lolo Jones. She said she still plans on competing in the 2016 Summer Games. Still hasn't been laid. As far, yeah, she didn't tweet it about it or anything. So, as far as we know, she still hasn't been laid. But she did spend three weeks perfecting the art of bobsled so <laughs> well she's enough. So, she's going to be in the, the Olympics in Russia then? Well, there are 24 athletes Name to the bobsled team. I don't know how many they bring to the bring to the thing, but uh, it says it 
something that gives her a chance to vie for a spot on the World Cup circuit this winter and possibly represent her country at the 2014 Sochi? Yeah, Sochi. Yep. Sochi Games? That's in Russia. Yeah, well, so... Best uh, of luck. Congrats on putting that three works work <laughs> three weeks work in. Uh, my last thing, real quick story, the World Series of Poker, uh, which started with 6,600 competitors, is down to three. And uh, kind of interesting this year, two of them are professionals uh, and one... One um, one amateur, uh, but uh, on Tuesday, Arizona State senior Jake Belzinger eliminated Russell Thomas in fourth place, uh, with an ace king treading past five meaningless community cards to bump his guaranteed payday up to one million, and setting up the Tuesday night showdown. So as you as you listen to this podcast, uh, they would have um, already played, but the. Uh, Finals are 24-year-old poker pro Greg Merson and Jesse Sylvia of Las Vegas and the player that I mentioned. So the World Series of Poker is down to three. Nobody cool. Nobody with a cool name like Moneymaker, but the winner will still get about $8.53 million. I'm going to put you on the spot real quick and ask you a question you might not know. Um, is it still big? Like when World Series of Poker came out, it's like, big enough and got huge. Right, like I was all in to use a poker mm-hmm. term. Like I loved it. I watched. I was glued to the TV watching it. I went out and bought a halfway decent poker chip set right. with a metal case we all and did. everything. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't touched it, and I probably haven't watched poker in years. Though I just don't know how well it draws anymore. I mean, it, was... it still airs on ESPN. I think they do well enough with it. I think it's. I think the right way to describe it would be that it leveled off. Yeah. You know, the popularity leveled off, and it is what it is. And I think they've been hurt by the really sh- the, the government shutting down the online uh, portions. But there's still uh, a segment of the population fighting to get that legal. And if that were to happen, maybe they get a- another resurgence. I think a pop, pro- part of the problem is probably it was a little bit oversaturated. It was yes. on constantly yeah. on a lot of channels. The one I actually do like, I'm not sure if it's still on, but was I think it's on NBC, the Poker After Dark, where they're playing just a cash game there. But you get to see a little bit. If, if you can see more of someone's personalities, but they'll kind of and, give you a little strategy tips too. And, and hey, it is popular enough for them to get six thousand six hundred people in their most their biggest tournament of the year. Yeah, that's what I was wondering too. Is is that that's a pretty large amount? It's not the largest. Not I, the largest. No. But, okay. Uh, my last thing, real quickly, the Islanders will be moving to Brooklyn in twenty fifteen, and that's cool. I guess. I mean, they had to go somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I know one thing that building right now the capacity for hockey would be fourteen thousand. Which in would Brooklyn? Ma- yeah, which would make it the smallest arena in the NHL. That's fine, though. But they said that they're going to do something to address that or maybe just go with a 14,000-seat arena what's, because yeah. on Long Island, what are they drawing every night? Right. 7,000? Yeah, so what's the difference? Yeah, so it makes sense to me. That league needs to lose teams. I, I hate to say that to a fan base, especially one like Buffalo that's a kind of a third-world well, country. It wouldn't be our team. No, it wouldn't. But, I mean, like, we, they've talked about that with the Bills and stuff in the past. But There's talk that they might long-term want to expand it's crazy. and bring two teams, Canadian teams, back. Quebec City and the second in Toronto. That would work, but just you already moved Atlanta. Just move move another Florida team and Phoenix finally. Yeah. Well, we uh, we have a lot to do. Like, we need to go over basketball, so we're going to get Taz Mellis on the horn, and we'll have him next week. And we need to talk to Greg Wyshynski about exactly what's going on with hockey, and we'll do that next week, too. 
But uh, Three Things Music ended a long time ago, which means we're <laughs> running long, which means we're going to take a break and come back with the winner of Season 10 of Big Brother and the runner-up of Season 14, Dan Giesling. Our next guest is from Dearborn, Michigan, and is a graduate of Michigan State University. He was the winner of the CBS reality show Big Brother 10 and the runner-up of Big Brother 14. He is a former teacher and football coach at Orchard St. Mary's Prep in Orchard Lake, Michigan. He is a published author, a life coach, and a self-proclaimed superfan of the movie The Karate Kid. He is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Dan Giesling. What's up, Dan? Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'll tell you what, uh, that's one of my favorite favorite intros I've ever heard coming into an interview. Very cool for you guys to play the uh, the Spartan fight song. Definitely got me fired up. Yeah, to, uh, the, the fight songs. The fight songs have a certain magic to them that they just, especially when the guests it's their first time and they don't know what's coming. It just has like a does something to our you know so and it's funny when we have someone who it's easy you know michigan state bam you find that fight song like that but sometimes i'll have to contract contact like an athletic director or uh sports you know and when we, we do all that to find it oh the guess is just out of his mind <laughs> <laughs> but uh we're really excited to have you on the show because you know it's a it's i I, I have this feeling that it's going to be different for you. I, I think, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the show and, and, and get a little sense of what that's about, but I really want to talk a little bit more about your experiences in sports and being a football coach and some of your philosophies about coaching and watching football on Saturdays and Sundays and what you see and, and, and those kinds of things. So, Let's kind of get started like this. Why don't you, because I think a lot of people know about Dan, the big brother player, but maybe don't know as much about Dan, the coach. Tell us a little bit about how you got into coaching and what your background is as a football coach. Yeah, well, you know, first off, for me, you know, I started playing football when I was in middle school, and then um, I went to public school up until middle school, and then my parents forced me to go to a private school, and kind of what connected me to football and coaching is when my parents forced me to go to private school, Divine Child High School, uh, you know, they they enrolled me for the football team or, you know, where we, you had to check out what sports you're interested in. So, you know, I got an early contact from the football team, which brought you into the school and the community before, you know, school even got started. So as a, you know, freshman heading into a brand new high school, I had a kind of a leg up because I got to spend a month with some kids that I'd never met before just through football. So, you know, kind of at the time, you know, I played in middle school, but when I got to high school, it really became difficult for me. And playing football really taught me a lot about, you know, discipline and working hard and, and more importantly, working with other people towards a common goal. And really, you know, throughout my high school experience, I attribute a lot of, you know, the success that I've had to, to playing football. And when I was done playing high school football, you know, I graduated at 5'9", five out of 150 pounds. I, I knew I wasn't going to play college ball. So when I graduated and, you know, went to Michigan State University, something was missing. You know, that first fall when I wasn't playing football, when I wasn't practicing, you know, there was a void in my life, and it, and it took me a little bit to figure it out. 
and it wasn't until really the football season was over then that I really figured out, hey, you know what, um, you know, not being involved in football was was uh, you know a big deal for me. And so that whole second semester of my freshman year at Michigan State, I would stop by the Michigan State football building, you know, on a daily basis, saying, "Is there anything I can do to help out?" You know, I'd get doors, you know, kind of slammed in my face, and the secretary would be like, "Yeah, yeah, just send us an email and keep in touch." And and so I just I kept after him. I, I'd send him letters and emails, and finally I got an interview with uh, the guy's name is Bob Knickerbocker, and he's in charge of uh, the equipment for the football team. And he he said, you know what, come on in for an interview, and we'll see what we can do. So. From there on out, you know, I spent my four years as an undergrad at Michigan State University helping out, you know, as an equipment manager. And, and during that time, you know, we had to do a lot of, you know, kind of dirty labor and do stuff that, uh, you know, people didn't want to do. But for me, I loved it because I was involved in the football team and, you know, I was going to the games on Saturdays on the sidelines. And then it kind of evolved for me from, you know, doing equipment stuff to, you know, once my duties were, were done as an equipment manager, I would just hang out in the building and I would sit in the football office until the coaches got to know me. And one of, at one point, you know, one of the football coaches, his name was Paul Haynes, he just saw me sitting there. And he's like, hey, you know what? Um, you need to do something. He's like, run copies for me. So, you know, I started running copies for, you know, scouting reports for him. And, and it kind of just grew from there. It, it, it grew from running copies to sitting down with Coach Haynes and, and drawing routes of the, the, uh, the opposing team. And so really kind of how things evolved for me is, you know, as a college student, you know, it kept me out of trouble. I wasn't, uh, you know, spending spending the weeks drinking and stuff like that. I spent all my waking moments and all my free time at the football building just learning the college game, um, you know, from, from the coach at Michigan State at the time. And it really, you know, to me, it, it kept me out of trouble, but it also motivated me to, to become a football coach and, and really kind of take things from there. How was the team then? At, when I was at Michigan State? Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, it, was, it was interesting for me because my first, uh, season as an equipment manager, uh, the head coach, Bobby Williams, he got fired. So here I was, you know, I was trying to develop relationships with the coaches, and then the whole staff got axed. And, and it really is kind of a, a rude awakening for me to how cutthroat the business is. And then a new head coach came in, and John L. Smith, and, and that's where, where I really kind of pushed things and really tried to develop relationships. So, you know, my first year, you know, there wasn't any success because of, uh, you know, they fired the coach, but then John L. Smith came in and turned things around and went to a bowl game. And through his time there, you know, he was, it was interesting because there's a lot of ups and downs. We, you know, we had some tough losses, but we also had one of the things that sticks out to me is we had a game at Northwestern in Evanston, uh, Illinois, and we were down 35 points with 10 minutes to go in the third quarter. I think it was like, I think 38 to three. And all of a sudden, you know, things started to, to form together and we fought back and actually came came back and won the game 41. Wow. And it was, the, I mean, it still stands as the greatest comeback in NCAA football history. And just there's a lot of moments where, you know, where we might have had like 500, um, a 500 winning percentage or, you know, made a, a lower tier bowl game. But I learned so much as a coach, you know, during that time. You know, I know that right now you're not uh, teaching – or, yeah. or coaching, right? So are yeah. you having that same feeling you had as a freshman that maybe something's missing right now from your life? Yeah, you know, because well, as things kind of progressed for me from Michigan State, is like I knew I didn't want – people always ask me, why didn't I stay in college coaching? Because I did have some opportunities. You know, when, when Coach Haynes went to Ohio State for the first time, um, you know, I had a chance to go with him, but I knew at that time, you know, 
I give these college co- coaches a ton of credit because that's their life, you know, and their their livelihood depends on a, on a, how their team performs, and, and so does their family. And to me, it was a little extreme. Um, where I love coaching football, but it literally it's a fifteen to sixteen hour day job, and uh, you know, so eventually I said, you know, I love coaching football, but I wanted to kind of have a little more balance in my life. So that's when I started coaching at St. Mary's, and so you know, to answer your question, and if I miss it now, it's it's right now. This is really the first time I haven't been involved because the first time I got off Big Brother, I jumped right back in, and it, it kind of made things. It helped me get back to normal quicker, but it was also a lot to handle. And it's fun for me right now because I have a, a brother-in-law who's a senior captain on the St. Mary's team and a cousin who's um, starting the backfield. And it's fun for me to, to kind of watch them play. Um, but I'm not going to lie, the first game I went to when I got out of the Big Brother house to watch him, it was definitely uh, very difficult to watch because, you know, here I am. I'm used to, like, helping coach these guys and correct these guys in, in the middle of a game, and, and now I was just in the stands. And, and so, right. you know, part of me – I really miss being around the kids and, uh, you know, coaching them. And, but uh, at the same time, it's nice to be able to sit back and kind of catch up on life a little bit because I don't think I'd be able to do that as well right now had I jump back into coaching. What kind of a football fan are you? I mean, yeah, you know, this is kind of, yeah, this is the kind of misnomer because especially when I was coaching at St. Mary's, I mean, you know, anytime you're a football coach, it's really your life, no matter on what level. It's just um, – it just uh, you spend so much time, and so it's kind of odd. Some people don't get it for me, but when I get home after a game at St. Mary's and I'm coaching, sometimes the last thing I want to do is actually want to watch football because you, I get so consumed with St. Mary's football and watching film. You got to do something, something else. The, the only the only team I'm obsessed with um, is the Detroit Lions. You know, I, I never miss a game or rarely miss a game um, because you know our, our state lives and dies with that team. I try to catch. You know, as many Michigan State games as I possibly can, but at the same time, you know, the coaches that I knew aren't aren't there anymore. So I don't really have that obviously since my alma mater, but I don't have that same connection. You know, I was really disappointed when I got out of the Big Brother house to see that, you know, John L. Smith right, at Arkansas, in Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they weren't doing as well as I'd hoped. I, I kinda wanted to see him ride off in the sunset and go to a, a BCS bowl game. Plus, you know, Coach Haynes is who's been my coaching mentor is now there with him again, except he's a D coordinator. So that was that was really, you know, I was really, really bummed to see that they had, a, you know, a couple early losses to ULM and they got smoked by Alabama. But, um, you know, to me it's really about, you know, the coaches that I worked with. I'm really rooting for them and try to follow their teams more so much at Michigan State. And, you know, I, because I don't have as the same type of coaching connection at Michigan State as I once did. You said you're a big Lions fan. What do you see you're, as a coach that is different for them this year from last year where they had so much success. They look like a team on the rise, obviously played in a playoff game against the Saints. Now this year, if not for a couple of good fourth quarters, they might not have a win. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think a, a big thing is a lot, of team, a lot of the teams are taking them a lot more seriously than they have in the past. But, you know, kind of my crazy analysis of that, and you can call me paranoid or whatnot, is you look at something called the Madden Curse. You know, I mean, you look at uh, Calvin Johnson on last Monday night playing against the Bears, first play of the second half. You know, he's he's wide open. I think it was either a seven route or a slant across the middle. And he's still, if he catches that thing, he's still running it. There was no defender's arm, and it bounced right off the, the chest. And, and you have a Pro Bowl wide receiver, you know, it shouldn't make that play. But, 
to me is that the Madden curse catching up with it. And, you know, luckily so far that he hasn't got hurt, but is there a little truth to that Madden curse? I think, you know, I think there is, you know, as superstitious as sometimes coaches can be, you know, what else can you point to? You know, he hasn't, he has not been leading the charge like he should have been from the receiving core. Um, you know, so that's kind of hard to deal with as a, you know, as a Lions fan. And there was a report this week that said he blamed his bad performance last week on a sore knee. Uh-oh. So we'll have to keep yeah. an eye on that. Uh, the sportscasters yeah. are here with Dan Geesling, the winner of a Big Brother 10, runner-up of Big Brother 14. What's something you could tell our listeners about Big Brother that they don't know? Yeah, you know, especially from the from the sports side, you know, when you enter Big Brother, I, I approached it, you know, as as a coach and as a sports competitor. It's, you know, for me, when I was in that house, I was always looking for an angle to play, much like when you sit there and watch film with your players. You know, there's always something you can get better on. And I think, you know, one of the things that I attribute to, you know, the success I've had, um, and that game is the fact that I never stopped working. You know, I was always analyzing something, whether it be how how someone talked to someone or how they looked at someone. I was always, always working. And I think some sometimes people uh, in that game let their guard down or, or they don't approach it the same way as, as a coach would, and I think that, that gave me an advantage. And, uh, you know, the other thing is is that, um, you know, unlike in, in sports, where you want to win everything in a big brother house, you know, you don't necessarily want to want to win everything. And, and and as a coach, that was hard for me the first time to kind of get over the fact that, you know, you want to win everything and you want to be successful in everything, but ultimately your success comes in on the last day of the season, not, not you know, winning challenges. Do you think that that's maybe something that, that held back Frank this year? Was his, him winning a little bit too much? Yeah, most definitely. And more so with that, one of the big things that, I say that, you know, Frank kind of misstepped on it. On day two, when there's no reason to get rid of anyone, here's Frank, this huge physical threat, doing upside-down push-ups in the backyard. I mean, like, he's physically inverted with his head, like, head on the ground and his legs back up against the wall doing upside-down push-ups. And when you've got a house full of people who are just looking for a reason to put someone up, that's enough. You know, I mean, I know he works out hard, but there's, you know, that's just putting a big target on your back. And, and that's why that's why I love Big Brothers because it's it's such a combination of so many things. But at the end of the day, it's really about perception, and it's kind of like you know running a play action pass. And if you can feign that you're you're running a ball and and you catch a corner sleeping and you can hit a long bomb, I mean that'll shock people, and 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 that's how you win the game. It's you, you don't win the game by by gashing people with eight yard runs and and people knowing where where you're coming from, you know and. And I think that's something that did hurt him. But on the same time, I mean, he was such—he had a lot of success because he was a physical competitor. Kind of a two-parter. One, did you guys know right away, or did it take a while, that he was the son of a famous wrestler? And did that matter? And do you think, you know, I always see every season people come into the house and they say, you know, I'm really this, but I don't want people to know that, so I'm going to say I'm something else. Do you think that that is the way to play. I mean, I, I don't remember you going in and saying, well, I'm a football coach, but I think I'm going to tell people that really I'm a, a pirate's assistant. You know, I, I, I don't yeah. get that part of it, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, the first part, as far as Frank didn't tell me that his dad was, uh, you know, Sid Vicious, you know, because I was a huge wrestling fan. And uh, I don't think that would have helped or hurt him either way. It may have actually helped for me keep him in the house because I loved wrestling. And, and that just gives you one more thing to talk about with someone. But, 
as far as uh, lying about, uh, you know, your profession, I really, I really think that hurts people more than it helps because you're really cutting off such a huge part of your life and, and things you can connect with people on. And unless you have a really intimidating profession, you know, like maybe you're a sniper or something, I don't know. I mean, like the, the fact that you hide, you're a nurse. Well, really, that's, that's the one thing I didn't get. You know, people, what's intimidating about a nurse? Nothing that's actually would help people because people think, you're caring and, and you have a lot of patience with people. So, you know, when people lie about, about things in the house that really I don't see the strategic advantage of, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, and that's one of the things. And, and the other thing is it confuses the viewers. It's like, why would you, I mean, what's your thought behind that? And, you know, so to me, it's, unless you have a really, really intimidating background, um, it's, which I can't think of a whole lot of things that are. There's, to me, I never saw a point in lying about it. You were a young kid when you won Big Brother 10, and yeah, you yeah. came into the Big Brother 14 house as, as a man, someone who has started a family. Um, how did that make playing the game different? Yeah, you know, for me, it, it, uh, it drew a couple lines. You know, the, when, whenever I compete in something and it's a game, there's not a lot of lines I'm going to cross, and there's not a lot of lines I won't cross. I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. And uh, for me, the first time around, you know, it's pretty much no line that I wasn't going to cross. And to me, the only time, the only thing I wouldn't have done this time to win the game was to do anything to jeopardize my marriage. But anything outside of that, I was willing to do. But but the funny thing for me is is playing the game this time around. I kind of felt like the, uh, you know, the fourteen the fourteen year career veteran going back in, kind of like the Dan Marino post um, Achilles heel injury. <laughs> you know, when he was slinging it around in the in the late eighties. I mean, he had the body to back it up, and it and. Uh, but I kind of felt like Dan Reno going back in there is a little slower. Um, you know, my body ached a little bit more, but I, you know, I still had to find a way to get some stuff done. But I physically, I definitely felt uh, felt different in that game, just because uh, you know. And it, it's funny. Last time I walked out of that uh, in season ten, I walked out with a leg injury. You know, whenever I, I sit down and, and uh, drive for long periods of time, my right leg goes numb because you know I spent three hours on an endurance challenge. And this time, like, I knew I couldn't do that again. You know, I knew I couldn't hang on for three hours, so I had to talk people out of it because, uh, you know, I just, I couldn't, physically I couldn't do the same things that, that I once did. Didn't you walk out with a shoulder injury this year? Is that yeah, common you know, to walk out yeah. of there with injuries? Yeah, this time, you know, I think I got hurt in the last endurance challenge. It was weird because, uh, you know, my, my left arm would go numb. It, like, it felt like someone would stab me in the arm and it would go numb in the most odd situations. And so it's, you know, so I walk the first time I walk out with a bum leg. This time I walk out with a with a bum arm. But you know what? It's it's kind of a cool reminder for me. Where it's the the, the tingling sensation in my left arm is definitely muted a lot. But it, it's just a cool reminder for me that you know that this is what you had to sacrifice to get far in the game. And, and it's gotten to the point where it's it's definitely gotten a lot better. But uh, you know, I think it's something I always have to deal with. But I don't mind. You know, it's kind of like those football players that walk around with with injuries, especially the linemen, you know, in a way it's something that's a good reminder and, and, and uh, you know, it's fun for me. All right, a couple quick things and we'll let you go. First, yeah. we got to talk about the Karate Kid for a second. Yes. So, um, this has always bothered me. Like, okay. I would have, ki- like, killed my mother the second I seen her waitressing. You know what I mean? It's what you- like you take me all the way across the country for some supposed <laughs> computer job that's yeah. going to have these great benefits. And by the second time I'm beat up, you're already working as a hostess at a restaurant? 
Well, it's, it's tough living in the city, you know, and that's, that's the thing, you know, it's, uh, you know, we find out in the Karate Kid part two that, uh, you know, his father passed away and, and he was kind of the man of the family, but, uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a funny, a funny thing to mention, you know, but for him, it's just, I think it's, it's part of the growth of Daniel LaRusso. You kind of see that he kind of gets dumped on a lot. Everything in his life is going wrong, except for this, this beam of light that is, uh, Miyagi and, and uh, yeah, so it's funny. I never, I've never heard of a, that argument in a movie. But, oh, I would uh, just, I would have been so mad at her. You know what I mean? It's like, what are we doing well, I, here? You... I, I think, I think he conveys that when he says, he's like, "Ma, I gotta take karate," and she's like, "Yeah, at the Y F C." And she's like, "Not at the Y." You know, I think that's that's as uh, as, as much fire you're gonna see from Daniel at his mom. You know, because he is a good kid in the movie. Right, and and I always. The date, I mean, to me, is just one of the greatest scenes. I mean, that first date was filmed so brilliantly. And golf know. and stuff? Oh, golf and stuff. And he wants to go on the slide. They don't have bathing suits. They're playing bubble hockey. I mean, just everything about it, the picking him up and kicking the brick. And, I mean, every little <laughs> detail of that. I think it's the greatest scene in the movie. What is your favorite scene in The Karate Kid? That's that's definitely one of them, especially when his mom picks him up and, and drives him in the station wagon and whatnot. But you know, for me, it's uh, I think it's in the Karate Kid um, part two, and even in part one, the, the my favorite moments that I swear to you, even in this day, that like there's a few moments in, in movie history that like my my body will like tingle or feel numb when I watch, and it's hard to explain, but it's like it just gets you that fired up and it just, uh, one of the moments for me is anytime he's training, um, you know, in the ocean, yeah. but, uh, especially in the first one when Daniels, he's doing all the work for Miyagi in his backyard. He's, he, it's not the wax on wax off. It's not the painting of the fence, but it's when it all comes together, you know, and, and it's, you know, you see Daniel dejected and, and uh, Miyagi's asking him to do wax on, wax off in front of him, and, and he just he just kind of pushes him off. But when Miyagi, he makes this, like, grunting noise, and he really goes after Daniel, and then you see Daniel, you see everything come together when, when he's blocking all Miyagi's kicks, and then he, at the end he bows to him. I'm just like, to me, that's, that's, that's one of the moments in the movie that, uh, you know, that gets me. And, and of course, everyone's going to say at the end when, when, he, uh, when he knocks out Johnny Lawrence. I mean, that's... That, when be- right before I entered in the Big Brother 14 house, I had a mini DVD player with me. And the, the executive producers came in, they're like, all right, Dan, it's time to enter the house. And I said, I need 60 seconds. And I put in uh, the the end clip of uh, The Karate Kid, and, and that's the last thing I watched before <laughs> I entered in the Big Brother 14 house. That's awesome. Uh, and oh, my, One other thing I want to say about it, underrated yeah. line, and it probably took me 10 times watching the movie to realize what a great line it is. When one of the guys from the Cobra Kai is, they're walking past Daniel and Ellie with an eye, and he t- turns back and says, "What is this? Take a worm for a walk?" Week? A walk week. But yeah. it's not really like it's not delivered very well, you know. Like he doesn't say it right, and it just for a while. It, but when I when it first clicked to me, I was just like, "That is so brilliant!" I mean, what an incredible put down. Take a worm. <laughs> Daniel's the worm. I get it. Oh my god, that's so funny. There's uh, there's a couple there's a couple other subtle uh, subtle um, hints of humor in there. The guy that uh, Daniel meets like a neighbor friend early on in the movie, and he's wearing a white T-shirt, 
And, uh, you know, I, I don't know the rating on your podcast, so I don't want to get, get too much into it, but there's a picture of two pigs, and the guy's shirt says, Making the Bacon, and, and you can only imagine <laughs> what, what the image on this shirt is. But uh, when you go back and watch it, you know, look for that. But well, one thing, you know, obviously you're a huge karate kid fan. For me, is, and I wrote a blog post about it on my website um, at com. but the coolest thing for me that came from this Big Brother 14 experience was the fact so while I was gone, you know, Chelsea did, my wife Chelsea did an awesome job building up, you know, Twitter and Facebook. And as people found out, I was obsessed with the Karate Kid. They would literally Twitter bomb Ralph Macchio. And on the night of the finale, I guess they just went after him and said, hey, you got to watch this, you got to watch this. And so when I get out of the Big Brother 14 house, you know, me and Chelsea, uh, you know, we get to the hotel room, I turn on my phone for the first time. And I see that uh, Ralph Macchio tweeted something like something along the lines like, "All right, I've been messaged a hundred times. I've never watched Big Brother, but I'm going to watch Dan because I hear he's a big Karate Kid fan." To me, like <laughs> to great. me now, I can die. Ralph Macchio has tweeted my name. I can die at this moment. All right, last thing. I just want to give you a chance. Um, I promised Chelsea we'd do this, but uh, I mentioned the Twitter, but I know there's a lot of things going on, a lot of opportunities for fans to connect with you through your website and things like that, and just lay it all out so everybody knows where to go, where they can find you, connect with you, even opportunities where you can coach them and things like that, just everything you think our listeners should know if they're interested in in being a part of Team Mist. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, The hub for everything I do is at dangeeson.com. You know, you can find the links to all the books I've written, you know, whether it's the guide on how to, that teaches you how to get on reality TV or, you know, punch it in, which is my, uh, 24 day motivational book to get you on track with a football theme. You know, you can find everything at dandeasing.com. And, and for me, you know, this time coming out of big brother, I've really, really enjoyed, um, interacting with the fans and because Twitter's here now, you know, and you can tweet mm-hmm. me at, at Dan Geesling. Or even on the Facebook page, you know, I'm just I'm a lot more active this time around, and I really just enjoy, you know, getting to to connect with everyone. So whether you know you you want to take a look at a book or, or you just want to talk about, um, you know, Karate Kid trivia, you know, you can you can reach me at dandeesling.com. And you can watch videos of Dan unpacking. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes. I never, I never thought someone could suck me in to 40 minutes of unpacking, but you did it, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, it's just like, to me, it's, um, cause I've been such a big fan of Big Brother and you get used to, you know, I watch the live feeds, you get, get used to watching, um, people all the time or, or hearing people or listening to people in the background, you have the live feeds on the background. And to me, it's like, I'm trying to do things that I wish people that I followed on Big Brother seasons would do, you know, it'd be cool. Like there's times when people would wear a t-shirt that I like, well, where did that person get it? You know, and, and. I just, I just really tried to, any things I wanted from, from other people, other Big Brother contestants, I'm just trying to share as much as possible. And, and uh, you know, even, I even crossed a creepy line of uh, posting a video of, of my MRI of, of my arm that I hurt. So. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing this. I hope you had a little bit of fun with it. I hope it was a little different, not the same thing that you've probably done a hundred times. And uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. I definitely, you know, it's definitely a, a fun interview from the different perspective of a coach, but but even more so talking about the Karate Kid. <laughs> Sometime we'll have to have you back and we'll just do like 30 minutes on the Karate Kid. We won't bother with any of the Big Brother stuff or anything like that. You know, we can 
get into Will Smith's son, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, and no, it's my pleasure to talk about Big Brother. But yeah, no, too, man. Keep in touch. Thanks, Dan. All right, I'll talk to you. Yep. All right, I want to thank Dan Geesling for being a part of the podcast, being on the show today, gotten something different, really fun, and I want to welcome everyone from Team Mist who's maybe listening for the very first time. A uh, quick book club update here um, as we quickly have are moving out of October and into November. Uh, we didn't do many shows in October, but the book club book of the month for October, of course, was and is the best American sports writing 2012. Uh, guest editor this year, Michael Wilbon, Glenn Stout, of course, the series editor. And in a second here, we're going to bring in S.L. Price, who has two articles in this year's Best American Sports Writing Series. So we'll talk to him a little bit about what it takes to get two articles in this book. I know we've talked to uh, Glenn before about what his job is in the book. And I know last year we were lucky enough to talk to Jane Levy and learn from her what a guest editor does. But I don't know that we've ever actually talked to a writer about how their work specifically ends up in this book. Uh, so we're going to do that a little bit with S.L. Price. But again, the book of Book of the Month for October is the Best American Sports Writing 2012. If you have any suggestions for what the book of Book of the Month should be for November, let us know. We'll make that announcement on Season 3, Episode 2 next week. But you can email us any suggestions at thesportscasters at gmail.com or you can tweet us at sports underscore casters. We're going to take a break and we're going to come right back with S.L. Price. Our next guest is from Stamford, Connecticut, and is a graduate of the University of North Carolina. As a student at North Carolina, he covered the 1983 Tar Heels team that featured Michael Jordan. After college, he spent time working for the Sacramento Bee as an NBA beat writer and for the Miami Herald as a columnist and feature writer. In 1994, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He has received multiple honors for his journalism, including two Associated Press Sports Editors Awards, two National Headliners Awards, and awards from the National Association of Black Journalists and the Women's Sports Foundation. He has authored three books, including his 2009 book, Heart of the Game, Life, Death, and Mercy in Minor League America. He has two articles featured in this year's Best American Sports Writing Series, and he just might be the most accomplished guest who's ever appeared on our show. For the third time, a warm sportscasters welcome to the great S.L. Price. How you doing, Mr. Price? Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. We're really excited to have you. I have to tell you that last time you were on, I think it was, it was in the beginning of the summer maybe, we kind of did the interview and talked about what we had planned, and then toward the end, we kind of got into this impromptu uh, discussion about the merits of Twitter, and you kind of said why you had stayed away, and I kind of tried to get you to not stay away, and it's probably the most talked about 10 minutes in the history of the sportscasters. <laughs> I mean, for whatever reason, we made magic that day with that little 10 minutes at the end there. I mean, we've never gotten... So many emails about something, I and mean, people were predicting. They're like, "You did it! He's going to be on. There's no way he stays off now." Um, 
you know, it was just it was this this it was unbelievable. But you, it, it was you're not there though, so people were wrong. I'm not there, and not only that, I can tell you that uh, you know two of my closest friends are on Twitter and constantly talking about it. And every time I see them, uh, they, they harangue me for about a half an hour. Like, you know, uh, and really less about why I'm not on Twitter than just how much they love Twitter. Because that's all I get. It's, it's, it's simply the most boring conversation I've ever heard. It's just, <laughs> just endless. And it's like, can we talk about anything else? Well, but we, there it is. We won't even try. We're not even going to talk about that today because we could never duplicate what we did that day, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> for the listeners who want to hear... Uh, Mr. Price and I talk about his disappearance on Twitter. You can listen to his previous uh, appearance on the Sportscasters, which is quite easy to find on our website. But yeah, if you uh, want to be bored, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations! It's, are, like, it's like it's like asking people about their workout or their diet. You know, it's like you know, you know, people just are, are mesmerized by the idea of it. But to hear someone else talk about how much they love their workout, their diet, or their Twitter account, it's I, I can't imagine a, a, a more more ho home conversation, but that's I, me. I think the thing that we have to fake the most when we when we interact with listeners is that we are interested in their fantasy football teams. I guess you know. Do you get that a lot? Like you know, hey, you're not going to believe this, but I, Calvin Johnson, he he got a catch in the fourth quarter, and I won fantasy football. Yeah, no, I know it, and and I understand. And a friend, like I said, I understand that people love that stuff. But and I understand it's important to them, but it's one of those subjects that it's so important to them, but it makes for the worst conversation ever. Can you imagine being buttonholed at a party and someone talking about, ah, oh, you know, I'm I'm working on my pecs, <laughs> <laughs> or God, I'm, I'm, I want to lose five pounds, or uh, uh, you know, okay, I've got 33 new followers on Twitter. I mean, you know, you just you just gotta you just want to hurl yourself out a window. All I don't right. know. Well, congratulations are in order. You, you have uh, two articles in the newest Best American Sports Writing series. And every year we, we, we love this book on the sportscasters. And we've talked to Glenn Stout uh, about the process that he goes through. And we talked to Jane Levy last year about the process that she went through in putting the book together. But I don't know that I ever asked a writer what it was he did to get his work to that point, I know there's some specific instructions on what you can do in the book, but I guess I wanted to know from you, is this something that you do? Is this something that Sports Illustrated does for you? or how does it? I don't know. I, don't I know? honestly don't know. I mean, I, I didn't do it. I don't know if Sports Illustrated sends in um, specific stories or if – they don't tell us anything. I mean, I, I just got an indication from somebody at Sports Illustrated saying, hey – you got two pieces in the best American sports writing. I didn't, I didn't, they didn't, I never heard from Sports Illustrated that they had quote unquote nominated or sent any in. I'm not sure that they do. It may just be that whoever's the editor or Glenn Stout, you know, sort of funnels what he thinks are the, you know, you know more notable pieces or whatever uh, from Sports Illustrated. And of course, Sports Illustrated is fairly, fairly prominent. So, so it may be just be that, that, you know, it's part of the editor's job to, read it every week i i don't know but it's it certainly i didn't nominate the stories and i don't know that sports illustrated did either the first i heard of it was when they um shot me an email saying hey you know we need to get you need to sign this release right now when, yeah. you, when you've seen the two stories that they picked and mm -hmm. you started to think about it for a little bit do you think those were the two best stories you wrote that year um 
Yeah, I, I mean, uh, sure. I mean, I, I mean, Aliquippa was it's the it was the longest story I've ever written. I'm working on a book on it, and it got an incredible amount of response. So, and it was a really satisfying story. I'm, I, I was less surprised by that. Um, I mean, especially. I mean, if I think about it, I mean, Michael Wilbon is the editor. He's a Chicago guy. Ditka, Ditka's from Aliquippa. You know, so, so um, you know, he grew up with Tony Dorsett, um, you know, in, in the air while, when he was a young guy. So, and he's a football guy. So, I, right. I, I mean, it made sense sort of on a logical, um, in a logical way that, that Will Bond would be interested in that subject. Just like uh, I think the year before I, uh, I had, um, or a couple of years before I had a, a story I wrote on Bobby Orr. And I think Peter Gammons uh, was the editor of that one, and it sort of made sense, you know, that he might be interested in that because Peter Gammons is a is a Boston guy. So, so it just, you know, it, it's like sometimes the subject matter just happens to hit the editor right, and, and maybe maybe the story isn't that great, but it's just that that editor, you know, um, you know, ha- has a personal interest that makes him even more inclined to pick it up or be be entranced by the subject matter. Um, the Djokovic one sort of surprised me because. Uh, you know, it's about a tennis player. There's not a lot of big readership about tennis in America. Um, there's not uh, Djokovic is Serbian. You know, I mean, it's it's not like he's an American phenomena or something like that. Um, but I actually, in thinking about it, um, you know, there are less and less stories done like that in journalism. You know, newspapers obviously used to be flush, and so they they had money and they could send afford to send people around to do takeouts. Um, but I went to Serbia and did a story on Novak Djokovic and, um, in the middle of his winning streak. And I think it probably benefited from the fact that they're just, you know, that it's more exotic than ever because they're, they're, right at this point in time, uh, American journalism is not doing as many of those kinds of stories where they're sending people overseas to, to do that. So, so it might've struck Mike Wilbon as, you know, wow, this is, this is different. So that's sort of my vague and uh, completely, um, you know, uh, random thought about how how it might have happened. You know, we we one thing we've noticed about the book this year, maybe more than in the past, and I don't know if this is more about Wilbon or if it's more about the state of sports media, but it seems like this year there's more and more dot com stuff in the book than ever before. Um, do you see? And and you know, uh, Newsweek recently announced that they're now gonna pretty soon not even have a print version of their magazine right. it's going to be just digital do you do you, do you do you feel like this is coming more and more faster and faster now that uh magazine writing is going to be more focused on doing it you know on the internet and utilizing the website and the iPad and digital venues like that well i, I mean there's, there's there's a couple different things a couple different moving parts to it yeah i mean clearly everything's going more digital i mean there's no no question of that but but the, you know, the they, they still haven't figured out the business model. <laughs> you know, print pays, print ads pay, and so um, in a way that digital ads do not. So um, the question, of course, is whether digital ads will pay for the kind of journalism that you get with print ads, meaning the ability to go to Belgrade for ten days and work on a story about Novak Djokovic. You know, whether there'll be an, enough money in the in a kitty from digital ads to do that. The obvious advantage is that printing and distribution costs of magazines and paper 
will be non-existent. So you'd think that it would balance out, but still, the business model, at least as far as I can tell, hasn't hasn't really solved, <laughs> hasn't really been presented uh, that that will make up for the loss of, of print ads. So that's that's a real question going forward for print media, and so. Um, it's you know the iPad, Sports Illustrated was in the vanguard of the iPad in many ways, uh, but it's you know who, who knows uh, you know whether that will pay you know people will be willing to do long form and looking for journalism on the iPad. It's really a question of what people are are are, are want um, whether they really want to look at long form journalism online whether they have the patience to do that. You know, as opposed to printing it out, um, because they don't want to stare at a screen for you know for long pages, as opposed to a short take column um, with bullet points, um, and whether they're will or and whether they're willing to take what they transfer, you know, take a print what they love about having a print magazine in their hands and transferring it either to a iPad, you know, sort of a a, um, a tablet like device. I'm I'm not convinced that people desperately want long form even on a tablet like device. I hope so because it looks beautiful. In fact, in many ways it's more gorgeous on a tablet than it is in a magazine because you have the backlighting and everything else and you have the added options of, of video and audio that you can't get from a magazine. But um, I, I, obviously everything is tending that way and we just hope that uh, the business side people and I mean this in all of journalism, magazine journalism, long form newspapers, can figure out how to make it pay. Yeah, well, I absolutely love Sports Illustrated on the iPad. I know I've told you that before. But there's mm -hmm. still certain articles that I say to myself, you know what, I'm going to save that one for Thursday when it comes in the mail. I don't know why. Some things I just would rather read holding the magazine in my hand. Like, for example, Tim Layden had a great piece in last week's magazine about 63 and the 63-yard right. field goals. And, you know, I can – I usually wait – I'm usually up. Uh, around midnight on Tuesdays as we work on the show all day and I'm winding down and catching up on DVR and uh, I'll download the magazine right away on Tuesday night. Uh, but it won't be in my mailbox until Thursday, so I usually go through it on Tuesday, but there's always usually at least one thing that I want to save you know, for Thursday. I don't know why. Um, I couldn't give you a good, you know, why. Well, Stephen, how, how old are you? I'm 31. Okay, because because your generation... And below, especially, I hate to tell you this, but you're getting old. Yeah. Um, your your generation is is um, and especially like ten years previous, the twenty one year olds. I'm curious to know whether they are reading print at all, whether they're or whether they've made the move to tablets like iPads, or we're going to lose something in between. Do you understand what I mean? Meaning yeah. that be, like that younger generation isn't quite getting isn't in the reading habit of of reading long form on tablets yet, but they're not looking at print magazines anymore, and so that's that's a real question. You know whether whether that next generation is going to be lost yeah, until they until the habit is really ingrained in a in a widespread way. Uh, you know, maybe the next generation will be everybody will read everything on iPads. I almost feel like we're right. Like my generation is right in the middle where we grew up without a lot of the technology. But then when we right. hit high school, that's when the technology kind of came in and we've kind of embraced it. So we're like almost in the middle. And maybe me saying that I like to look at it on the tablet and read the magazine is a perfect proof of me being right. kind of stuck in the middle. But um, Right, but I'm saying what I'm asking is the next generation, the one that isn't 
bridging with one foot on both sides. The question for me is whether they have picked up the habit or are interested in the habit of reading long-form journalism, not necessarily just sports, everything online, or whether they're reading long-form journalism at all. I have no idea. Right. Well, I think Apple, that's the question. I think Apple is, you know, with the iPad Mini. I think one thing that they're hoping to accomplish with that is to get students in the habit of using their textbooks on that device. And I think that they think the lower price of the Mini will encourage uh, college students, especially, and maybe that will, you know, get that transition going. Uh, and look, the, and look. The other thing is, is just that the, the that the the proliferation of places like of sites like Grantland, Sports on Earth. All that stuff seems to be a good sign for, you know, survival of long form. Yeah. I don't. I can't. I can't quite tell yet if it pays or if it's just a vanity, uh, a vanity play. But um, it is certainly encouraging um, to see long form, you know, blossoming a bit on, yeah. on the web. And they're both. Do, I mean, they both do very. I like both of the sites very much. Uh, you mentioned your Al Quipa article a little bit, and we always have to check in the progress of the book. Where are you at? with uh, the Al Quippa book. When will, when will we see it? Two years yet? Yeah, it's going to be a while. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, uh, you know, toiling on it today as uh, a, a little bit. So um, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Um, it, it has, the work has begun. I was in the library in Al Quippa a few weeks back. Um, the team is, you know, doing incredibly well again this year, even better than they were last year. I mean, they're averaging an absurd amount, 50-plus points, and giving up maybe a touchdown a game, the number one seed in the WPIL um, playoff. So, so um, uh, it, it it goes it goes onward, but I've got I've got a ways to go yet. Yeah, uh, the um, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about the. There's been a little bit of a change of of leadership at Sports Illustrated, new editors, things like that. Is that gonna change what you do at all um is that just kind of business as usual for you you just kind of keep doing what you're doing i, I don't know um I, I chris stone is is the new managing editor of, of sports illustrated um he's a great guy i've known him for my entire time at sports illustrated um he's got a great vision and um uh great ideas and energy um, i i think he's i think he's going to be superb going forward um uh, you know, obviously we're at a point in time where we're, we've got to get the website and the, and the magazine married up a bit. So it may be that I do some different things, uh, which would be great. I mean, what, for example, when I was at the U S open, I'll give you an example. This is, this is interesting. I did the U S open the tennis in New York. And this year, instead of, I did a long, like eight page story the first week of the open, which usually we would do. Um, you know, just a, a notes page. Uh, and instead I did a sort of thing on the atmosphere at the U.S. Open and how it's changed over the years. And and then the second week, you know, with all the rain coming on, you know, our deadline, you know, we, we, we were pushed to Monday. The magazine closes Monday night. Right. And so instead of uh, last year, you know, rain has been a problem for the last, you know, four or five years at the U.S. Open. I did three different stories on the final day, meaning one for if one person won, one if uh, the other the other guy won, and one if we couldn't get the result in in time. This time, instead of scrambling and really going down to sort of white knuckle situation at deadline, uh, I wrote a piece for the web on 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 the women's final, uh, and then another piece on the men's final, 
you know, Saturday and Sunday, and uh, sorry, Saturday and Sunday and Monday. But they are on the web instantaneously, you know, obviously as quickly as I could file it overnight. Um, and then uh, there was nothing in the magazine. Wow. Which has never happened before. In the history of the magazine, we've always had a U.S. Open story. And not one person, we didn't get one letter saying, hey, where was that U.S. Open story? <laughs> now we flagged in the magazine, hey, get, you know, you can get stuff on from, from uh, tennis coverage on SI.com. There was a big picture with an extended cut line of Serena winning, and that was it. Um, so it was a completely different way of covering it. Um, and in some ways, it was fantastic because we were able to obviously get you, and I wrote 2,600 words on Serena, and then something like, you know, 18, 1900, whatever, maybe even more on Andy Murray, uh, and they're in your hands instantaneously. But of course, you know, if you're not, if you're not tuned into SI.com, you wouldn't have gotten it. But um, obviously, that's the way for the future. And maybe the idea of, you know, doing coverage of events, which SI used to be essentially, you know, the news weekly of, you know, 20, 25 years ago, whatever happened that week, you know, you do, you have game stories. Well, everybody knows what, what happened game wise. So I think you're going to see less and less in that. You'll have more immediate coverage on the web and maybe more thoughtful, uh, longer perspective, in-depth pieces in the magazine. And that's something Chris Stone, I, I think, is very much in favor of. And, you know, I, I read both of those stories that you posted online, and I might have missed them, but John Wertheim does a great job during those tournaments with daily mailba- mailbags of drawing me to the website that I was able to to get them that way, you know, because I was in during the tournament going to the website every day to read right. John's column every day. And when you go to the tennis page and then I saw your article, so I did kind of connect with them that way. And I think that SI does a really good job of bringing me to their website during the events. I think that's yeah. kind of a strength of the SI website. All right. So as a result, you're seeing that, I think you're going to see that more and more from SI, which, which is, I think a very smart thing to do. All right, last thing. Um, with your El Equipa story uh, came a, a video piece that uh, was on the website, and I really enjoyed. And since that has happened, SI has developed a television program that airs on the NBC Sports Network and also airs on NBC, and we've seen great pieces from people like uh, Sarah, Sarah and um, let's see, who else we see on there? Lars Anderson was on the last one I know, and Lee Jenkins was on. Um, is are you interested in turning one of your pieces into uh, a piece for that new Sports Illustrated uh, magazine style television show? Uh, I mean, I'm not not interested. I'm I'm happy to do it if they're if they want to do it. It's more as if they're interested. Meaning meaning if you Got know, it. it's sort of um, it's whether it's something that they think is TV friendly or or accessible or or whatever. So I'm I'm more than happy to do it. I don't know that I'm very good on television, but um, uh, you know I'm better off behind a keyboard. But uh, I'm I'm happy to do wherever I, I'm happy to go wherever they point me. Where are they pointing you right now? What can we uh, look forward to? I have a piece on Penn State in the current issue coming out tomorrow. I was up in Happy Valley, so we did it. You know, sort of a year later. Gotcha. And um, and then uh, off and running somewhere else. I'm not quite sure yet. All right, a couple well, stories right. juggling. Yep. Thank you very much for doing this. Uh, we appreciate it, as always, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Absolutely. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. 
with the first pick, Adrian Peterson. Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, we have Let Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, we want to thank S.L. Price for being on the podcast today. It's always an honor to have such an accomplished writer be on the show, and we want to thank him for that. Uh, five on fantasy today. I got some business to do. The first thing I want to start with is just an update of the listener league. And the first thing I want to say is there are some people, it seems like, in the listener league who aren't playing. And unfortunately, when you have a free league, and you, yeah, it happens. It happens, you know. And I've noticed that in my game last week, I was playing against someone who, you know, clearly didn't have. He, there was two players I think who were on buys, and sometimes it's just a mistake and you forget, and that happens to all of us. Um, but all I wanted to do is just say I'm sorry uh, to the people who are trying to make the league competitive, to those who 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 aren't. The good news is. When we do get to the playoffs, you know, I, the the cream will rise to the top. Everyone that's been competing in this league will get to have a fair playoffs because I think the people who aren't playing won't make it. But uh, Pittsburgh Feelers uh, leads Don's division with a 5-3 and three record. And the men who knock lead my division finally getting lost, though. Uh, so he's 7-1. and one. Uh, I'm 7-1 as well with the most points in the league, 1,248. It's kind of a shootout type of a league. A lot of points get scored. Um, Just about every team in the league has over 1,000 points for, except for two. So, again, I just want to apologize to anyone who, you know, is hoping that that guy on the other side is going to win and they're not playing. That kind of sucks. sucks. You know, but that's what happens sometimes when it's a free league and, there's nothing we can do about it, but we'll make sure that they don't compete next next time. Sure. All right. Uh, second piece of business here on Five on Fantasy today: pickups. What do you got? Anything worthwhile out there? Boy, it's slim picking at this point. Uh, if Dustin Keller is still available, he's had two nice weeks since coming back from injury. If you kind of are in a tight end bind, could do worse there. Uh, Rashad Jennings is going to play a few more weeks. It looks like. So if you've got MJD or if you just need a guy, there's a fill in for a couple of weeks isn't there's not a lot out there cecil shorts is only owned in 3.4 yeah, percent weird of espn leagues if you need a wide receiver for a week what's his ranking it's got to be somewhat decent he has these big days yeah you know his I mean? last second touchdowns and yeah he had eight passes for 116 yards crazy against the packers last week so it's a guy maybe that would be decent uh chris givens um, is only owned in 2.9% of leagues. He's been kind of a deep threat for for them. A guy I want to mention is Ryan Broyles yeah. uh, with the Lions. He's had two nice weeks. Yeah, and Burleson has broken his leg, which kind of opens it up. He's only owned in 1%. If Titus Young, ESPN I leagues. guess that's a good one. If Titus Young was dropped, which I know I've had him in leagues and dropped him and picked him back up and stuff like that, pick him up. I yeah, mean, Titus Young and Ryan Broyles, I think, are going to get a bump in the Lions offense yep. with Nate Burleson being out. And Calvin Johnson has mentioned his knee is sore. But it's it there's just there's not much there. Yeah, it's kind of uh I know in my one league 
we're about a week away from the trade deadline. So if you're trying to tool up, you might have to do it through trade. I don't even see a lot of guys out there that are like home run pickups. You know what I mean? There's just depends on how deep your league is, I suppose, but it's, it's maybe, pretty slim. May, doubtful, but maybe is Jonathan Dwyer double check and make yeah. sure he's not owned. If he's available for sure. He, he looks has like to be he'll, he'll be the guy he has in Pittsburgh the yeah. rest of the way. So at this point, it's kind of like checking to see if a guy slipped through the cracks. And if he did, grab him. If not, there's not much there. One thing to do, too, is always watch people's drops. Because sometimes someone will drop someone. And uh happened to me at the beginning of the year. I had some. I had Romo. So I was kind of questioning my quarterbacks all the time. And someone dropped Phillip Rivers. I thought that was crazy. And I picked him up. Turns out it didn't work out. Phillip Rivers has been worse than Romo. But... Uh, just watch their drops because sometimes they'll drop somebody you won't even notice it, and then you'll see somebody else scoop them up. And just one last thing I wanted to mention: Beanie Wells. He's a guy who's probably pissed you off if you've owned him in the past. He's on injured reserve right now, but he's eligible to come back after week twelve because of the new injured reserve rules. Right, and he says he'll be ready to play right away, so he's a potential stowaway guy. They'll have nothing to play for, though. Most likely by that point. I mean, they're four and four right now, but we mentioned earlier. So you're they're, saying they're that maybe they just fast. don't put him in? Might not. Uh, a guy that might, if you have deep benches and he, for whatever reason, has been dropped. Actually, it's not even for whatever reason. He's been terrible. D'Angelo Williams. Uh, there's always kind of murmurs that he might get traded. The Panthers have just named Jonathan Stewart their starter. The trade deadline, I think, is tomorrow. Or it got pushed it back was because pushed of, back the of the hurricane. Yep. But if you can afford to kind of just sit on a guy. If he doesn't get traded, he's worthless. So if you have a league that has a free agent auction budget, you want to spend a buck on a guy in a in a space, you can stash him until the trade deadline and hope for the best, I suppose. If he moves to a different team, if he moved to Green Bay, uh, not sure who else needs a running back. Running backs are kind of dime a dozen in real life, but in fantasy they're hard to come by. Maybe St. Louis? Yeah, sure. I don't know why they would make a trade necessarily, unless it was for the long term. Maybe the Steelers. I don't know. They've got three guys there, so but maybe the, the Saints if they think they can make a run. But they got three guys there too. I don't. They all stink. <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe Dallas. They they've got three guys, but they're all banged up. So I don't know. Running backs are tough, but D'Angelo Williams has shown in the past he's got some talent and he's. Always in the rumor mill. All right. Uh, last thing for today, we're going to do real quickly starts and sits. And we did uh, do some starts and sits for last week, and we'll show you how good slash bad we are at it. Yeah. We'll own up to these. Um, I I did sits last week in the dark, and uh, I blew it with quarterback. I said Stafford. He had his best game of the year. Uh, I nailed it with running back Steven Jackson. It was more advice to just get away from him. Um, probably for, kind of for probably the for year. Good, yeah. yeah. He had 45 total yards and two catches. He's probably a flex right now at best. And then I said maybe Larry Fitzgerald, and he only had five catches for 52 yards. So you might have had a better option there. Uh, Don did starts. He had Michael Vick. He had 42 yards rushing, 192 passing, and a TD. It's about 15 points. Pretty average day. Yeah, uh, Alex Green had 82 yards rushing and four receptions. Yeah, if he scored for you there, that might be a nice – Bye week fill in, but I'm not going to take pat myself on the back for that. And one. Uh, Chris Givens, that wide receiver, kind of a deeper play, scored. and he scored and had 63 yards and three catches. So that's not so, bad. No, 
All right, my, I'm going to do sits this week. I'm starting with Andy Dalton, which at the beginning of the year might be an obvious sit, but if you got a guy like Rivers, uh, you mentioned Rivers, uh, Dalton's had a nice year, to put it quickly, and maybe you've got a guy like Tom Brady on a bye this week, and maybe you're thinking about playing Andy Dalton. I just pumped the brakes a little bit. Uh, the Broncos shut down a superior quarterback in Drew Brees last week. And right. I think they do more of the same this week. So temper expectations, as we like to say. I'm going to go out on a limb with my start and say Cam Newton. I know that he hasn't lived up to expectations this year, but they play the Redskins this week, and it's impossible not to compare RG3 sure. and Newton. And if there's any reason to be pumped up for a game, wouldn't, wouldn't this be it? Sure. So, go for it. Their stats are actually fairly close, except for the rushing. I think Griffin's probably blowing Newton away this year. Kind of the season Newton had last year, this year for Griffin. Yeah, so, I mean, I just figure if he's going to have a big week, this should be it. At home, against a guy that he's constantly going to be compared to while yeah. he's in this league, and he desperately needs to play a big game. I'm surprised from a programming perspective that that wasn't like a Thursday night game or something for the league because you'd have the two young stars in there. Yeah, but we have San Diego and Kansas City this week. (laughs) You don't want to displace that. Great. Uh, My sits at running back this week is Darren McFadden. And, again, this one might be a little bit obvious, but he did just come off a nice week. But it was kind of a a nice week against a bad team, and he had to compile them. He didn't exactly blow anybody away. Uh, I... I talked earlier how maybe he was a buy low target. That's wrong. Uh, I I don't think he's got anything. That offensive line isn't helping, and they're a three and four teams somehow. But I I don't like McFadden at all. If he's ranked highly in your league, it's probably it has something to do a little bit with that. He had like fifteen catches week one. It right. has been nowhere near that since. So if he's going to start being utilized even half that much in the passing game, then maybe he'll have some value, but it doesn't seem like he's going to have anything in the rushing game. Um, I start this week at running back is Reggie Bush. I think uh, Reggie Bush owners might be a little bit nervous the way it seemed like the Dolphins had got back to a split backfield with Thomas last week. But I still believe in Bush. He's having the best season that he's probably ever had as a running back through the middle of the field. And uh, he's got a good matchup this week uh, against the Colts. And um, I think he could do some good things. And if you have him and you got a little bit nervous, I don't think now is the time to pull the plug on him just yet. All right, my wide receiver sit this week again. Uh, not a guy that's had a great year, but Hakeem Nix. He's playing the Steelers, the number one pass defense in the league. That's Victor Cruz's team now. Uh, Nix still doesn't look right. No, he's banged up all year. If you drafted Nix, you're probably in bad shape because he was probably your second overall pick. I was making a little bit of a joke when I did my sits last week about how I do some editing for this website, which I'll give a plug to www.proplayerinsiders.com. <laughs> yeah. And there's a guy who does a fantasy column on there and I don't, it's not Matthew Barry right in this column. Okay. It's some guy. And I always edit his work and it seems like his sits every week are just whoever's playing the 49ers. It's just like, you know, so last week his sits were like at quarterback skeleton, at running back, uh, you know, Howell. Howling, Stephen yeah. Howling. Yeah. And then uh, Fitzgerald, and I was joking about that. Well, I think his starts is probably everyone who's playing the Saints. 
<laughs> right? So I'm going to go with Jeremy Macklin at wide receiver this week. He didn't have a great week last week. He's been injured, not injured. But uh, I think he should do just fine against the Saints this week because they can't cover anyone. And I would uh, be just as fine to see you start Deshaun Jackson, who should do just as well. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's going to do it for five on fantasy this week. We ran a little long on three things, so we wanted to keep that a little bit short. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with an interview that we recorded before the break with Brian Curtis from Grantland.com. Our first guest today is from Fort Worth, Texas, and is a graduate of the University of Texas. He is a staff writer at Grantland, where he has recently authored pieces on Josh Hamilton, Notre Dame, Jerry Jones, and the second Indiana Jones movie. He is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Brian Curtis. What's up, Brian? Hey, Steve. How you doing? Doing really good, uh... Really excited to have you on the podcast. Every time we have a new person from Grantland on, we get pretty pretty pumped up. I think you're like the fifth writer from Grantland that's been on the show. Oh my gosh! And uh, you've and, almost you've almost collected the whole set. Yeah, we're we're going all the way till we get to the top. You know, all the way until Mister. There you Simmons go. Is on the show. <laughs> uh, but um, one thing for people who listen to the show often know that. We're pretty fascinated by Josh Hamilton and everything that surrounds him. And earlier in the year, we had Tom Verducci on, who did a cover story for SI about Hamilton. And um, we followed the story really closely. And you wrote a really nice piece on Grantland that appeared, I think it ran yesterday, kind of about the end for Hamilton in, in Texas and how badly it ended up going. And I don't know if you could recall a season quite as strange for a superstar player. I mean, it's like his season went from dream season to nightmare to dream season to nightmare, like three different times over the course of the year. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> what you wrote and kind of where, what, why exactly you wrote it, like where it came from exactly. Sure. I mean, I think one thing about Hamilton, and if you've been, um, you know, as a Hamilton watcher yourself, I mean, you know, I mean, the kind of central narrative, the kind of way we think of Josh Hamilton is in terms of this story, which I think in the story, in my piece, I called the story, right. uh, which is, you know, he has a very familiar now arc, right? He starts out as the you know, number one pick, he gets addicted to crack and cocaine, and then he has this big, you know, kind of inspiring comeback. And as a Rangers fan of very long standing, I have been, you know, inspired by that and and really thought that was cool and, you know, and it was just as, just as kind of caught up in Josh Hamilton fever as anybody else. But what happened, interestingly, this year, as you say, in 2012, was there were all these kind of weird, complicating moments. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to set out to do is talk about how Josh Hamilton's narrative, this incredibly powerful story about him, really really kind of made life difficult for him. Because what happened was, is at the end of the story, as you know, he's this rehabilitated guy, right? He's the MVP. He's, you know, leads the Rangers to their first uh, ever World Series, and in fact, does it twice. And then, you know, he's rehabilitated. He's found God. He's made amends with his family. 
all these great things. But then what happens is Josh Hamilton actually has to live the rest of his life. And the rest of his life is very imperfect. Uh, you know, actually, in baseball terms, right, there's a ton of injuries. Uh, he's kind of detached a lot of the times this season. He has a relapse, uh, another one famously in January. The fans really turn on him at one point in the season. And all of a sudden, Josh is still being looked at by all of us, I think, me included, in, in, in the terms of his, of his narrative, of his story, of his story of redemption. And, you know, real life, <laughs> after the redemption is over, kind of doesn't work out so neatly. So that's kind of what I wanted to sit out and say. Can he get away from this by switching teams, or is he always going to be trapped by this narrative? In your opinion, you know, I, you know, it's very funny. I mean, I think um, I ha- don't. You have this vision that like Josh is going to sign with the Dodgers or the Red Sox or whomever it is, and he's going to give this opening press conference, and we're going to hear all the whole story one more time. I have a feeling, you know, all the reporters in Boston or all the reporters in LA or wherever who haven't really been over this ground as much as people in Texas have are just going to want to talk about all this stuff again, you know, and I don't, you know, I mean, part of, part of what's the tension here, right, is that Josh wants to tell the story, right? He still wants to go to churches. He still wants to help people out and inspire people and, you know, tell people that they can turn their lives around. But at the same time, you know, like I said, he's going to live the rest of his life. So I'm not so sure that he's ever going to completely be able to do that without us kind of going back to the familiar Josh Hamilton story that we all know. You know, as someone who's been following and covering Josh Hamilton like you have, I'm sure you've thought about this in terms of if you could advise Josh Hamilton on where to make the next step. When you look at the baseball landscape, do you see a perfect place for him? Because when I think of L.A. and Boston, I think of those places as, I don't know if I want to say traps because there's probably traps everywhere, but as someone who's covered him, do you... Do you envision a perfect place for him? Like, oh, if Josh could just make his way here, it could work best. You mean in terms of, like, staying clean and that kind of stuff? Or you mean just in terms of, like, his overall comfort level? I think I just mean in general. Definitely being clean is part of it, though. I mean, I think the thing is, I think Texas was pretty ideal because, I mean, one, Josh is a southern guy. Dallas, Arlington, Dallas is a very southern place. I know from growing up there. Uh, the expectations from Rangers fans are actually pretty low compared to the rest of the major leagues. I mean, obviously they've grown a little bit after the last two years, but certainly nothing like they would be in Boston or even LA. Ranger fans are pretty chill. <laughs> they're not as, you know, they're not going to be kind of sweating out your every at bat like it would be in some places. He's got, you know, a really good, uh, you know, kind of church there that he likes to go to and he's comfortable with lots of friends you know, and the kind of support group around him, and I know his wife and, and daughters like living there and that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure that you're going to find a place more ideal than Texas. Now, that's not to say you can't go somewhere else and, and flourish as a baseball player and as a guy and all that stuff, but I kind of think he was in what's pretty close to the ideal spot before. I really think some place like Boston is going to be really tough because I don't think he's had to go undergo the kind of talk radio uh, you know, Sons of Sam Horn's microscope right. uh, before. And he's certainly going to have to do it there. You know, I've read, so I, you know, I read about Josh all the time, so I, I, forgive me if it wasn't what you wrote or if it was someone else, but I read somewhere that Josh is maybe having a really hard time coming to peace with the fan that died trying to catch the ball that he tossed into the stands and that 
is it maybe that despite all these things that Josh has went through and been able to overcome, is that maybe one thing that is going to haunt him forever now? You know, it's just, it's so hard to say, right? I mean, I almost stayed away from it a little bit in my article because I just felt like that's such complicated emotional terrain, right. you know, and without, yeah. you know, I mean, I just don't know how without being inside his head you could ever know that. I mean, it's certainly... We can we could just you know guess that anybody who had that experience, uh, you know, we would just you know that'd be really hard to to deal with and process. On the other hand, it, it was just one of those absolutely fluky things. You know, I mean, it's just it's not something. I mean, if, you know, obviously if you, anyone that tells us it's just something that happened and it's not his fault and all that kind of stuff. But I really don't know. And um, you know, it's hard to connect that stuff back to baseball. You know what I mean? Right. Because you know. Maybe he's suffering from it, but then again, you know, he had a fantastic, you know, April, May, right? So, you know, did it just come around in June when he had a slump and then kind of went away and then kind of come back? I don't know. You know, just tough emotional terrain, and I really, I wouldn't have any answer. You know, I I feel bad for Josh in a sense that when people look back on his career with the Rangers, sure, a lot of people will remember that that's the place where he got his career back again but I think a lot of people are going to remember it most for how it ended and the image of Josh kind of almost nonchalantly dropping that fly ball in the game against Oakland and maybe costing the team the division I know that that's not fair because there's so much more to it but do you kind of agree that right now that that's the taste in most fans mouth and it's going to be tough for Josh to wash that out it certainly is right now I mean it's like you know, I think if you talk to Rangers fans or only go down to Texas, there's a sense that that and you know those four at bats that we all saw against the Orioles the other night, where he looked at only eight pitches, he gets into a first pitch double play. His last at bat, where he swung out and where he struck out, sorry, on three straight on three straight pitches, was just one of the ugliest at bats he's got to ever have in his entire career. And you know. I just look at that and it's such a mystery to me because on the one hand, of course, you get a lot of fans saying, oh, Josh, quit on the team, right? And, you know, I'm always reluctant to say that about athletes because I think we probably, you know, you know that probably happens fairly seldom and, you know, I wouldn't, you know, without knowing and, you know, in a way I would never say that about an athlete. And in Josh's case, it really doesn't make any sense because he has a huge contract here coming up right. here. You know, sort of goes against what we normally think about athletes, right? That they're locked in in their contract here. Maybe they, you know, ease up a little bit after they get the big money. But um, so I, you know, so and it's one of those things. And also, you know, you wonder about the the ocular keratitis he had back a couple, like less than a month ago now. He's having trouble with his eyes. I mean, certainly drops a fly ball on a bright day, which is what he's had problems with before. He didn't look like he seen the ball particularly well against the Orioles at the plate. Uh, and his approach is just kind of all messed up. So I just wonder, I mean, I wonder if there's some kind of medical part of it too. But yeah, no, I think I think it's one of those things that's going to be remembered. It's going to be really hot, seared in memory right now. And then, you know, in a few years from now, probably people will forget it. I remember it was like as a, as a Dallas sports fan, when Dirk Nowitzki lost the uh, in the first round when they were at one seed. It was like 2000, I don't know, say 2009. Uh, and, you know, everybody says, oh, Dirk, you know, will be remembered for this forever. This will haunt him forever. You know, and then, of course, a couple of years later, the Mavericks win the NBA. Yeah, no one even remembers that anymore. Right. So I wouldn't be shocked if something like that happens with Hamlin. You know, you mentioned those at-bats in Baltimore. And I know as I was watching in his last at-bat that you mentioned when he struck out, it's like he stood there after 
he had struck out for a second. I'm pretty sure it was the last out. And he just took his hat, you know, his his batting helmet off, and he was taking his elbow guard off. And the camera kind of focused on him for a second, and it almost like was like you could look right through him. Right, I know, right. And it was like, and there was a, there was another moment that was sort of like that where he when he dropped the ball in Oakland the other day, he doesn't turn around right and race toward the ball. You know, he doesn't have this like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? Kind of reaction, kind of. Kind of turns around and kind of ambles towards the ball, and another ranger outside winds up having to go grab it. And it's just surreal moments. I mean, you know, and Josh doesn't, you know, he's it's funny because for such a kind of guy who is so forthcoming about his weaknesses and his past, you know, he doesn't give up a lot in day to day interviews. If you if you follow him, you notice, know right? I mean, you read his like you read game stories about him. Josh is not like the most colorful quote in the world, and I just don't think he's really talked you know, about what's happening to him. He's talked about it at various points in the season, but, you know, obviously there's something something going on with him and we just don't know quite what it is. You know, you, we talked a lot and you've talked a lot about his story, the story and the story arc, and this story has just closed a chapter and there's a new chapter that needs to be written. And when you look ahead and you try to project what might be in that chapter – do you just look at that as a fruitless exercise or in your mind, is there some words that will certainly be written in that chapter? I mean, it's certainly, it'll be, I mean, in the sense that it'll be definitely be fascinating what happens and, you know, and maybe it'll be, you know, maybe it'll be completely happy. I mean, I don't want to, I want to make this so Josh is like doomed or anything like that. Cause I don't know that that's the case. And I certainly think he can, you know, there's, you know, potential he can be, go where somewhere and be happy and be productive and do the kinds of things he wants to do on the field and off it too. And all the goals he obviously wants to accomplish. What I would say though, is that, you know, it's to me likely what's going to happen in the next chapter is going to be very dramatic. You know, I mean, one of the things I wrote in this article was that when we hear this story, you know, the story is packed with drama. I mean, Josh, when he was in the grip of addiction and stuff, looks up, he's standing in the outfield, he looks up in the cloud and sees Satan's face grinning in the cloud, you know, grinning at him in the clouds, and he you know, feels Jesus visits him actually through a television, again, if I'm remembering his book correctly. And all these kind of dramatic events happen, and I think one thing we do as baseball fans, we kind of, and when we read these stories, we expect all the drama to end when the sto- with the end of the story arc, as you put it, right? Yeah. Like Josh is clean, he's sober, he's hitting home runs to the Rangers, and we expect the drama to be cut off. And now all he's going to do every day is sh- show up at the ballpark and hit him out and, you know, high-five and sign autographs for fans. And in fact, someone who's led such a dramatic life is likely to pretty much always lead such a dramatic life. Now, maybe manifested in different ways. doesn't mean he's necessarily going to be addicted on drugs, but it means he's going to have a lot of very kind of vivid experiences in his life. And I think that's what you saw this year. And one of the things I kind of felt was interesting about the reaction to him this year was that Rangers fans and writers and some national writers too were really turning on him for a lot of the things that they had, with the things that they liked about him in the first place, right? I mean, they liked the fact that he had a vivid life. They liked the fact that he was forthcoming and saying these strange and mystifying and, and occasionally awful things happened to me and I survived them. Well, then all these things start happening to him during the 2012 season. And he's still, and all of a sudden now these things are quote-unquote distractions and clubhouse drama and all those other words you hear during the course of a baseball season. And I sort of think, 
I was a little bit kind of mystified by that, but wait a second, why do we like it when it was in the confines of this book and this DVD and this narrative, but now we don't like it. So anyway, I guess my the only thing I would predict about Josh in the future is that his life is going to be dramatic, which means there's no way it's not going to be. For it not to be, he would just be a different guy than the guy we've gotten to know over the last three or four years. The Sportscasters are finishing up here with Brian Curtis from Grantland.com. You can find the article that we're talking about that Brian wrote about Josh Hamilton on the front page just a few minutes ago. I checked it was still there at Grantland.com. You can follow Curtis uh, at CurtisBeat on Twitter, and he's linked the story there. Uh, two last kind of small things, and we'll let you go. Uh, one thing is when I read your intro there, I was kind of fascinated by the kind of depth and range and seemingly great journalistic freedom that you have at Grantland to one day be able to write about Josh Hamilton and the next to be able to write about Indiana Jones. Is that what drew you to this job is like kind of the range and the freedom that you have to write about so many different things? You're really nice to say range instead of a short attention span. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe the latter. Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, to me is what's so amazing about Grayland is that, you know, it can accommodate so many kinds of things and not just different like topics, like you say, uh, Temple of Doom versus Josh Hamilton, but also different, really different kinds of pieces. You know what I mean? Like really long kind of thoughtful profiles or really kind of short, really tough column or, you know, all the amazing things that Bill writes. I mean, it's just, to me, one of the great things about Grayland is just how flexible it is and how many, different kinds of things you can discover on the site every day. Do you find yourself defensive of the site when a new uh, guy comes on the block, like Sports on Earth? You know, like, do you do you kind of look over there and say, you know, come on, guys, that's that's too close. That's that's what we're doing, you know, like, back <laughs> off a little. You mean like sh- Sharks and Jets and yeah. uh, West Side Story or something like yeah, that, or yeah. uh, like two rival gangs battling yeah, get it off out? Of our, get off of our uh, turf, uh, Major League you Baseball. You know what, I don't, I don't actually, because I think, the first way I think of it is as a reader, you know, because I think it, um, we're all readers before we're even writers. And I just think, like, you know, the more the merrier. And isn't it great to be a sports fan in 2012 and have all these amazing, uh, you know, resources and, like, places to read great stuff on the Internet? Because, I mean, I remember I've been, you know, worked in Internet journalism since the early 2000s. I mean, it was not like this back then. There were people always writing me and saying, this is, like, pre-Deadspin, pre-Grailin, of course. Of course, writing, I remember people writing me then going, when is somebody going to write a great sports blog? When are we going to have great sports website you know everything sucks on the internet and uh and now there's just so many great things so no i mean you want to be competitive because you want to be the best and do the best job you can but you also just love to read all the great stuff out there all right last thing real quick uh it's oklahoma texas week your university of texas all right uh here we go yeah (laughs) i won't i heard that boomer center intro yeah i won't i won't grapple with you I'll, uh, I, I think what I'll do instead is just ask you for your favorite memories from the rivalry. Gosh, I mean, a couple of games. I mean, this is going to be very Texas centric, right? Right, so, I mean, of course. The two, the, yeah. I was, I, I tried to get down there. I live in Brooklyn, but I tried to get down there as much as I can. 2004 game, which was, you're going to have to help me remember, it was 12 to nothing, I think. That sounds right. OU and, um, so when I went to the 05 game, that, that was the one where I think Oklahoma had won five straight. And they that was the one game where Bomar started in the series. Texas won, Vince Young won, and they went on to win the national championship. That was a huge monkey off the back kind of year uh, for me. 
And then I think, and obviously me and the Longhorns too, not to make this all about Brian. The uh, the other big one was, um, <clears throat> sorry, 2008, which is I think the year OU was number one and Texas was like number five number going five, into the game. Yep, yep. Texas, Texas won 45-35. Correct me if I'm getting my numbers No, nope, that's 100%, 100% right. That was the, um, the game where Oklahoma was seemingly in control and then Ryan Reynolds got hurt and then the middle of the field was open the rest of the day and Texas just took it over. Exactly right. And yeah. and you know what's like what's funny is like one of the things is like I'm obviously a huge Texas homer, but I when I when I think of Texas OU to me is the awesomeness of getting to see great players on the field at the same time for both teams and that those OU OU and Texas team where you had Sam Bradford on one side and Colt McCoy on the other side was so loaded, you know. Yeah. And even O four, which I told you about like kind of being mad and just being miserable at the game which you, when your team gets shut out. I mean, getting to see Adrian Peterson play in his freshman year and running for, as he did, like 225 yards in that game. I mean, that to me is what Texas OU is about. I mean, like just like, you know, the great Michigan-Ohio State games or the great Notre Dame-Michigan games. Well, you have to go back 10 years probably to find a couple of those. But anyway, when you have that kind of talent on the field. So that's, those are the ones I really remember. The ones where James Allen, you know, Scores the winning TD in overtime. That's the kind of one I guess I forget. Right. Yeah. I'm surprised. I'm really surprised you didn't mention like the 2000 game, um, where Oklahoma won 63-14, or the 2003 <laughs> game. <laughs> no. uh, Brian, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Anytime, and uh, appreciate you having me on. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, I want to thank Brian Curtis for doing that interview with us a couple weeks ago from Grantland.com. Brian's a great guy, and uh, we look forward to having him on the podcast again in the future. Uh, I want to mention you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us, sportscasters at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the show. And you can find us on our website, www.sportscasters.com. Dashcasters.com. Also, don't forget to check out our Football Nation podcast, www.footballnation.com. Click on podcasts at the top of the page, and uh, you can find our interview this week with Freddie Coleman and all of our past editions, including interviews with guys like Peter King and uh, Kenny Albert. All right, pick four is the last piece of business, and since we're starting a new season, that means we're starting with zero and zero records. Not going to count any of the games we picked in the dark because you didn't know about them, but I do want to mention that I did a little research, and uh, this is how it's played out in the first two seasons. I went 94 and 94 in season one, and 87 and 66 in season two, giving me a 181 and 160 total. Don went 88 and 102 in season one and 75 and 79 in season two for a 163 and 181 total. And the reason those aren't the same is because occasionally we've done stuff that were only bonuses. They weren't negatives if you got it wrong. Right. So that brings us to season three and everyone is zero and zero. All right. The game of the week this week is a college football game and that is... Alabama LSU. Uh, this game comes around every year, and every year it seems to be 
Everyone's had this one circled. Yep. Uh, Alabama's a nine and a half point favorite right now on the road, and I know you're not supposed to take that or lay that many points on the road, but I'm going to take Alabama. They've just looked better than everybody this year. Yeah, Alabama's the number one team in the country for a reason. They're eight and zero, and I don't think they've had a close game yet. And I think that that kind of works against them this sure. week. You know the the scores in their games so far: forty one fourteen, thirty five nothing, fifty two to nothing, forty to seven, thirty three fourteen, forty two ten, forty three thirteen, thirty eight seven. They're putting together a historic season. Okay, but. Only two of those teams were ranked at the time they played them. Number 8, Michigan, who's nowhere near the top 25 anymore. And number 11, Mississippi State, who they played last week. Uh, LSU is number 5. LSU has one loss. Their loss is to Florida. But they play close games, and they have experience in close games. And I think that gives them a little bit of advantage, not to mention they're going to be home. And I don't know. Alabama's the better team. I agree with that. And it won't surprise me if they win the game. But when was the last time these two teams played a game and it was decided by more than 10 points? I'm not sure. Wasn't it the national title game last yeah. year? Yeah. <laughs> if you mean non if you mean a regular game, then LSU actually won both both uh, the previous two meetings. So. Yeah, the national championship game last year, LSU won and 21 nothing or no, Alabama won. Yeah, Alabama won. It, but it was a, a shit game, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take LSU. All right, my host choice this week. I pumped up the Dolphins a little bit earlier, which should pain me as a Bills fan. But the Bills have uh, almost fallen off my radar. But uh, the Dolphins are a one point favorite on the road at, at Indy. I think Indy's a team on the way up. I think the Dolphins are a team that might might already be there. Uh, that's CBS one o'clock on Sunday. Give me the, the Dolphins minus one. I love when this happens. Uh, I got the Colts plus one over the <laughs> Dolphins. Uh, I don't know. I, I look at them as pretty equal teams, and I don't know if the Dolphins are going to have Tannehill or not. Um, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I guess part of what I point to is Indy got crushed by the Jets, and the Dolphins just crushed the Jets. So True. Like the flow chart of it, I feel like the Dolphins are a similar team to the Jets, at least strength-wise, and I'm sure they'll be watching tape on what Indy did last. Well, it's it's fun to be on the opposite sides of these. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. My worldwide leader pick. This is where we pick we worldwide leader like ESPN. We pick a nationally televised game. I'm going with Thursday night's game, which now the NFL Network practically is everywhere, right? Yeah. It's got Time Warner now. Yeah. So uh I'm gonna take the Chiefs on the road again, but I'm getting points. I'm getting ten points at San Diego and me and Steve just talked off the air about this. San Diego doesn't deserve to get to get ten points against anybody. No way. I don't know why they're the ten point favorite in any game. Uh, they've been really uneven, and I'm not sure. I don't have their schedule in front of me. I don't think they've blown anybody out. I mean, they've only won three games. So, give me the Chiefs plus the ten. I feel confident about that one. That, that's one of those games I feel so confident in that Vegas must just know something. I'm thinking of something wrong there. My worldwide leader, I'm going to be a homer. I'm going to take the Saints minus three over the Eagles on Sunday, 8.30 on NBC. I just feel like they they got to bounce back, right? And I don't know. Blind faith. (laughs) 
I, I'm looking at this San Diego schedule real quick, and actually two of their only three wins were kind of blowouts. They blew out Tennessee 38-10 to and Kansas City 37-20. So I guess when they win, they blow teams out, and when they lose, they they lose somewhat close. Maybe they're not as bad as – I don't know. They should be better. They stink. They, yeah. Uh, my bold prediction this week, I'm going to take the Lions. Again, another road team. They're laying four points on the road at Jacksonville. I think the Lions might have kind of clicked a little bit last week, and I'm not sure if it's too little too late halfway through the season, but uh, they only a four-point dog in Jacksonville where I'm not sure home field advantage matters all that much. So I'm going to take the Lions and triple that line and take the Lions minus 12. We were talking off the air about that Chiefs and Chargers game, not because we're really weird, but because I decided for my bold <laughs> prediction that I'm just going to take the Chiefs straight up over the Chargers. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I needed to say something bold, so I'm going to say that. I know the Chiefs stinks, but the Chargers stink too. It's a short week for both teams. The heat is really on Romeo and and Kansas City in general, and I'm going to just hope that they rise to the occasion. And the Chargers is awful coach. I wish I had those 10 points, believe me. But yeah. to be bold, I'll say that they'll just win the game outright. Sounds good. All right, that's going to do it for the podcast this week. Like I said, we got a lot to do next week. We got to preview this NBA season. We got to find out what's going on with the NHL. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to check us out at footballnation.com. You can cue the hip. All right. <laughs>